Hi, podcast listeners. This isn't an episode of the show, but rather an interview with me, uh, Rob Wiblin, on another podcast called Eureka. It's a bit different from most other interviews where I'm a guest because my interviewer is a very old friend of mine, uh, Misha Saul, who I met when I was 13 and we were both just starting high school. We look back on the last 20 years that we've known one another uh, and think about how we ended up developing the, uh, the moral views and, and personalities that we did, uh, including the role of our families, uh, our friends, um, the school that we went to, um, and the books that we happened to encounter early on. I also find myself talking about uh, spending a year with, uh, with strangers in Spain when I was 16, how I ultimately influenced Misha to develop his own uh, very different worldview, uh, and why at high school Misha used to make fun of me for wanting uh, so-called chicken planets. Uh, as you might expect, someone who has known me since I was 13 is, uh, is in a position to ask questions and uh, think of comments that, uh, that very few other people would be able to. At first, we weren't sure whether this was really a, a good fit for this feed, because um, after all, my, my teenage years and childhood friends aren't uh, precisely technically uh, one of the world's most pressing problems. Um, ultimately, though, we decided to put it out there, uh, firstly, because my colleagues just really enjoyed listening to it, uh, and secondly, because how people interested in, in trying to change the world uh, end up with the views that they have uh, and how they try to lead balanced lives now uh, is kind of an interesting topic in itself, uh, and one that we uh, don't often opt to go uh, that deeply into in, a, in our own episodes. If you're just uh, subscribing for hard-hitting interviews about climate change and, and nuclear war uh, and the other scary problems in the world, this, uh, this interview uh, might not be for you. Uh, but if you're open to hearing something a little bit more personal, uh, I think you might well have fun with it. If you do like this conversation, uh, Misha has many other interviews on his own show, uh, Eureka, uh, which you might want to check out, uh, including one with Mark Luder, who has previously been on the 80,000 Hours podcast to talk about charter cities, uh, and, and the popular philosopher Agnes Callard, uh, who I hope to speak with myself someday. All right, without further ado, here is my friend Misha Saul interviewing me. Rob, I'm really pumped about speaking to you. Obviously, we've been um, mates for about 20 years now. I think it's probably fair to say you're my oldest friend that I'm still regularly in, in touch with. We started a high school together. I mean, there, there are obviously got friends from primary school, but probably probably less less close now. And so I'm, I'm excited to, to use this time to put a bunch of questions to you and to, to have a conversation that we probably wouldn't normally have when we're just having a beer or, uh, or Skyping or, or, or whatever it is. And I think I want to try a new format where this is a little bit more free-flowing. Maybe we can try and replicate you know, a real conversation between us, even though we've kind of both mic'd up and like <laughs> podcasts can be pretty performative i think hopefully you know we can try and escape that although uh you know maybe it'll just be a different kind of uh performance who knows but um but look there's a lot i want to chat chat about today and, and so why don't we just um why don't we just uh, see where this goes but i thought you know one thing i fondly recall is being at your place and your mum listening to radio <laughs> national while uh, while cooking and i reckon she might well listen to this convo so why don't I kick off with what you learned from your mum? Yeah, well, I'm I'm excited as well. Uh, a little bit nervous. This is uh, I'm used to doing interviews about like the issues of the day and climate change and so on. Perhaps a little bit less about my personal life. So yeah, we'll see how I go. Yeah, my my mum. So yeah, she, my mum just listened to the radio constantly. Uh, listening to I guess yeah, Radio National. You're saying which for non-Australians is like I guess it's like BBC Four. It's the educational interview program where like learn about the world, learn philosophy and so on. And yeah, I, I definitely picked that one up because I, I remember 
in my uh, my first few jobs when I was 16, 17, and 18. I'm not sure whether you remember this, Misha, but I uh, worked at a plastics extrusion factory. I don't which, remember uh, that, actually, no. <laughs> the money was really good, strangely, incredibly good by UK or US standards. But yeah, I was just like packing plastic punnets, like pot plant punnets and food containers, takeaway food containers that were coming out of this machine. And I'd be doing this monotonous task for eight hours a day. But the entire time I'd be listening to Radio National and I'd be like super engaged and uh, having actually actually having a fantastic time. And basically, yes, it's, I, I, I guess I probably picked up my kind of podcasting habit effectively from my mom. These days I spend a couple of hours every day listening to podcasts and, and audiobooks and, and so on. Wow, that, that, that was, I didn't see that coming to be honest. That's highly specific. <laughs> it is funny though, like... <laughs> Like people have to remember, this is like a long time ago. This is like probably a decade before podcasts became a thing. You're a total front runner when it when when it came to that, which is kind of um, which I actually think is kind of indicative of, you know, like other observations we'll kind of get to. But I think it's indicative of your kind of personality and 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 um and you know where you kind of came from. Yeah, I, I started listening to Econ Talk in 2007. I think that was one of like the a very early podcast. Uh, that was like a year after Econ Talk started and no one had heard of it. I'd never really put together probably like a lot of that stuff is just because of my mom being like such an absolute fiend for the radio, which I think she she is to this day. I guess, yeah, other stuff. I remember my mom really pushing on me the idea that uh, just because you feel something or have a reaction to something doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Like you can get very angry about something. It doesn't mean necessarily that it's justified. And you potentially you can be like sad on a given day, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a good reason to be sad which is, I guess, extremely obvious in a sense, but I probably was useful to be told that repeatedly when I was young, because I think many people don't have that as an instinctive thing, even if they kind of know it as a, as a, as a factual thing, that you don't always have to take your feelings as being super informative, because just sometimes they're not. I reckon that's super non-obvious. I think it's a, it's a minority view. Like, I think it's obviously correct as oh. well, but I, I, I suspect like if you kind of surveyed the world, a small percentage of people would, would take that view. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you can go too far with that and just start, like, if you're consistently sad, then it might be that there's significant problems with your life. Like maybe your marriage isn't working out or you're unsatisfied with your job and so on. Or maybe someone has frustrated you that day. But I guess, yeah, I notice, at least to myself, I feel, you know, some days I'm like cheerful and energetic and other days I'm lethargic and kind of cranky. And very often I can't really find any specific reason. And I think, yeah, moods can often just shift around for no particular reason. And and if you start taking them as too informative when there doesn't seem to be a really compelling reason, you can end up reading too much into them and being like, well, maybe my partner is bad because I feel bad today. When in reality, either maybe you didn't have enough sleep or or perhaps you're just in a bad mood for no particularly identifiable reason. Yeah, what's a, another one? I guess my mum is like a, is a very high integrity person. I'm not sure whether you have any memory of this, but just like very kind of by the books on like financial stuff and like following rules consistently and like always trying to be extremely fair and transparent with people. I think she, she's tried very hard to like make sure that my brother and I, for example, get like the same amount of money basically out of like various different things that they've funded for us over the years uh, well, as we grew I, up. I do recall she ran for the uh, for the Democratic Party. Is that what they were called? The Democratic yeah. Party? Uh, yeah, the yeah. Democrats, which is Democrats. I guess they're the yeah, equivalent yeah, yeah. of the of the Liberal Democrats in the UK. And probably there's not really any, anything analogous in the US, but they were, yeah, a third party kind of center left, I guess, or kind of some, somewhat centrist, I guess, left on economic things and then like liberal on social issues. Well, I, I think it's super interesting to think about where, you know, the stew you came from, so to speak. Like, I, I think you've moved, 
you moved a lot over time in terms of your view, your political stance, but where you started is actually super informative. And I think you started with like your, your, your instinct probably significantly from, from your mother, I think is quite leftist. And I, yeah. and this is like, you know, going real back when, when you're young. And obviously that's kind of, you know, maybe some of those fundamental values are pretty consistent, but in terms of your kind of outlook, that's probably changed dramatically over time, which is, which is interesting, but we'll, 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 we'll touch on that. What about your dad? Or actually, I don't want to drop off that thought if there was something you want to say about the, the Democrats and, and her running for that, and if that had any kind of meaningful impact. Or yeah. Anything. I mean, obviously, so the fact that she was running for a minor party in these uh, in an election suggested she was very socially minded and like concerned about how things were going, uh, which I guess definitely definitely got passed along. It's, it's interesting. My mum's my personal view, I think, is that she didn't or like both her and my dad didn't shape my <laughs> development or opinions all that much. That I was like one of those kids who like kind of came out of the womb with like a pretty strong personality and that they kind of shifted things around the edges, but that they, they weren't really able to make that much difference perhaps for, for good or ill. My, my strong view there is that that's with every kid. You know, I've got three kids yeah. and I reckon if being a parent <laughs> doesn't make you a genetic determinist, like nothing will. <laughs> like they're a personality at three months and you can see it and recognize it. And after that, it's all just filling in the detail. Yeah. Have I ever told that story? My mum my thought that I was like actually dumb, like I had an intellectual disability when I was really a young child because she said I would just like sit there like staring out of the world, like listening to things and seemingly not really reacting to them or, or doing anything. And I think she ended up concluding when I was older and it kind of became apparent that I had interesting things to say, that I was just like <laughs> this funnel for information, that I was just observing stuff and being like extremely attentive to what was going on. But I just didn't really have that strong feelings about it. I didn't have very strong reactions. But apparently I was just like a very kind of placid baby. And uh, I guess that kind of has transferred through to today. I don't don't have much of a temper. Well, I, I do totally recall you, know, you being at massive infovore, you know, to use like a Tyler <laughs> Cowan kind of term. You yeah. probably were onto Margin Revolution and, and the blog blogosphere and all that kind of stuff way before. You know, I've been reading Margin Revolution for probably, I don't know, 10 years now or something, or you know, maybe a bit less. But, you know, you were well onto all of that, you know, Already, already, already in high school. Yeah, my um, my cousin put me onto the blog Marginal Revolution because he was an, uh, an economist, and I think I started reading it and like never, never looked back. I ended up transferring into an economics degree not long after that. Yeah, I remember. I guess kids these days won't remember, but there was a time when you had to kind of phone up and pay a dollar an hour to to be on the internet. And I was I'm, like, even as I think a eight year old, nine year old, ten year old, I was just like obsessed to get on the internet and just like read websites. I don't know how unusual that was. I think a lot of people didn't have internet at home at that time. But yeah, just like reading news from overseas, just reading any kind of blogs. Yeah, I think I wasn't terribly discriminating. And maybe I'm not like sufficiently discriminating today either. But uh, it's a pretty persistent character trait. Yeah, no, totally. And so your dad? Yeah, my dad. Uh, Let's see. So I guess he was just very into discussing things and debating things, especially over dinner, kind of every night. We would almost always be discussing some kind of substantive topic in politics, society, philosophy, history, whatever. And I think I learned a lot of, I'm trying to think, probably learned a lot of like communication skills or explaining things to people and got very comfortable explaining things to adults when I was uh, quite a young kid. I suppose I was also really into computers because of him because he he worked at a university uh, when I was a young kid and was able to bring home a PC when I was like three, four and five on the weekends. So we would kind of be playing computer games from when I was an absolutely tiny kid, when I think almost none of, like no, no one else practically had a computer at home to, to work on. So I was like 
writing stuff out in in DOS or like figuring out how to do DOS instructions in a computer at five, which was I guess was in like 1993. Uh, so I think that that had a pretty big impact. So as a genetic one is my dad just had an amazingly good memory. Uh, not 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 so much now because he's, uh, he's he's pretty old, but he had a very good memory, and I feel like. I think I've inherited that maybe genetically. I have a pretty, at least a very good memory for facts and things like that. You know, I often just remember like random things that lecturers said in an undergraduate lecture many, many years ago. I think more than some of my friends do. And I think that probably is coming through my dad. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember him being a bit of a provocateur as well. Like he's a bit cheeky. Oh, that's true. And so, yeah. Um, and, and, and probably more than you, I think. Yeah, probably more than me. Like he, he's, he's always had that kind of sparkle in his eye and he was taking the mickey a little bit. You know, but obviously, you know, in a pretty intellectual uh, context, which which I loved when I was over your place for dinner or whatever. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't think of that one, but that's so true that I guess I do love being a bit of a contrarian, like not not too much, but slightly dark humor, things that might rile people up. That is very much my dad's thing. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, look, I, I thought, I thought, you know, first of all, so, so Ingrid and, and, and Derek, if you're listening to this, you know, we've covered the bases. <laughs> we spoke, we've already spoken about the most important parts. So now we can move on to the less important stuff. So, <laughs> um, so I actually wanted to use this opportunity to tell you how important you were in shaping my worldview. Cause that's probably not something that, uh, you know, I'd probably, you know, think to discuss over a beer i think you and and, so, and the other guys that kind of group of us you know from early high school was absolutely were absolutely critical i think um you know i kind of entered high school i was pretty young when i went to high school i was 11 you know younger than everyone else by a fair margin and i was so i had no political consciousness or you know i didn't think or you know even conceive of philosophical issues or, or moral issues kind of explicitly and and you guys quite early on started, you know, talking about vegetarianism or, um, you know, other kind of leftist causes of effectively, which is kind of, yeah. you know, normal for, for, for yeah, for, for, for young kids. And, 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 and I, I recall recoiling from most of it. I just thought <laughs> most of it was total bullshit. And obviously, you know, I need to kind of explain why. And so I kind of came from, a, you know, as a, as a kind of look back in, in hindsight, like a very traditionalist, you know, conservative perspective. I think that's probably what I would call it at the time, although it was totally unformed. And you forced me to start to develop that. And that was basically the start of a journey that went on for years, basically at least till the end of high school. And then obviously we were more formed as we kind of entered university where, you know, you were the forcing function for me to develop my own views. Now, obviously that my views changed a lot. And, and to be honest, you know, over some heated debates and some intellectual fun debates <laughs> but over years, you know, I basically was able to kind of form my own views and in many respects move close to you. Absolutely. But I kind of look back and that peer group, including yourself and, and you kind of importantly within that group were like the most important aspect of my schooling years as a function of that. And I think, you know, they, they kind of say you become, you know, the average of the five people you hang out with or whatever. And I think I was super fortunate in that cohort that there were like some super smart people who, you know, I ended up having to kind of sharpen my sword against. So, you know, I don't know if you, if you want to respond to that, but that's certainly like my, like I'm very grateful to be honest, to have been able to kind of um, go through that. Yeah. Well, 
uh, I'm glad I was able to help you to realize fully why you disagreed with me. <laughs> why <laughs> I, I hate you. you. <laughs> I, hate I, you. Needed to, I needed to articulate why I, everything I you believe my chest. is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it is really true that you tend to like, yeah, you do become the average of a whole bunch of people who you're around. I remember, God, we went hard back then, like in year eight, year nine, year 10. We were like just constantly at one another with opinions and debating stuff and uh, and disagreeing. I, yeah, I remember us like almost ignoring classes, just like talking, like sh- practically shouting about vegetarianism and like whether you should donate money and all these other kinds of things. Which makes total sense, right? Like if you've just discovered yeah. the fact that there's like, you know, these <laughs> these industrial, you know, machines for brutality and yeah. slaughter out Hell there. Holes. Like, if, you know, yeah. you're, you're kind of a little bit inured to it now, I imagine, <laughs> you know, probably <laughs> reluctantly, but, you know, you're just discovering yeah. this and you're like, like why isn't everyone, is how is everyone just eating this piece of chicken or, or whatever? Yeah. You know, and, I, and a... I'd, I'd, I I remember like, this is later on year 11, 12, whatever, you know, we, we, I'd kind of snidely try to structure around, like if you paid me X dollars per week, you know, I wouldn't eat meat or whatever. And we, we never went through yeah. anything <laughs> like that, but it's kind of funny that kind of reflecting on that that kind of you know i ended up being you know a finance guy <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. and like, like it's, it's funny you can kind of see those kind of uh tidbits coming through but look to, it was kind of interesting you know I, I actually don't know what would have happened if i didn't have you know that peer group because we, we were in a kind of you know the super smart people in our you know in our class and and not just vegetarian probably limiting it but it was really you know everything like the nature of morality like i remember yeah. kind of um yeah. You know, like we formed very strong views about where morals can or can't come from, you know, yeah. as we kind of went through year 11 and 12 and like, so, but why don't we, why don't we touch on that later? But it was, I mean, anything you want to kind of add them? Oh yeah. I, I remember, I think when I was 14 or 15, I became like kind of depressed, I think, because I realized that I didn't really, I couldn't really find any solid grounding for empiricism, for like the methodology of science. I was like, oh, like, I guess one just like can't know anything. Yeah, I was, I was deeply troubled by that. And I think eventually just like came around to thinking, well, it does seem like we can know things. And even if I can't exactly justify how, I should just probably carry on and stop worrying about this. I know, it's so funny. Like I, 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 it's a I problem was, of induction. Well, exactly. And, and, and I was, you know, I was like, that's it. We're all nihilists. And, <laughs> you know, there is no morality in this universe and it's all subjective. And so, you know, I, I can just do stuff because I feel it's good and you can do stuff because you feel it's bad and other mates can do stuff because they, whatever. But like, there's actually no point having a conversation because we're all just, all these kind of, you know, systems are built on, you know, subjective axioms and that's it. And so, and at one point we just kind of all kind of agree that that was the case and never spoken yeah. about it again. Partly because <laughs> we were so sick of it, but we all so kind of agreed. Of and then we were all kind yeah. of like, well, okay, well, we're going to believe whatever we're going to believe anyway and just kind of moved on. <laughs> I, I remember that you and somebody else had a list of quotes from like your philosophy teacher. Uh, I can't remember what her name yeah, was. Yeah, that was, that was me. They were just yeah, like yeah. absolutely inane quotes from, I guess, someone who was meant to teach us philosophy, but knew far less philosophy, I guess, than 14 or 15-year-olds. Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, many of our teachers uh, knew much more about this subject matter than we did, but it turns out this one did not, and the quotes were just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm grateful to, to a number of my teachers who are, who are great and I learned a lot from, but oh my God, there were some absolutely effing useless teachers as well and um <laughs> and um like like even just looking back i'm a little angry because you know i can't imagine subjecting my children to like such idiocy and a waste um, of time. yeah such a waste of time and, and, and look to be fair you know you know i remember and 
uh, one of my English teachers was not like this. You know, she was lovely and she, you know, I, I learned a lot, lot from her. But she hated the fact that I'd write down things that I thought sounded stupid. And so she, 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 she kind of noticed that I'd like write down like something uh, that was a hilarious quote. And so in hindsight, I, I kind of look back and I go, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I must have been the absolute like nightmare, nightmare student, like, like, like throwing gags and like taking the, the piss out of teachers <laughs> and like, um, you know, thinking this or this was was dumb and, and to be honest it's kind of like persisted and now i'm like embarrassed in front of you know you know yeah <laughs> workplaces or wherever where i'm kind of um i'm kind of the same but um but yeah yeah I, I think i think that's one way you influenced me especially in that time was maybe becoming a bit more hard-nosed a bit less polite a bit less willing to take shit from people being like very direct about my views yeah, I, I I definitely think like my sense my sense of humor and uh, <laughs> how I explain myself very plainly. I, I can see elements of Misha in it. What what's your Twitter bio? Something about like know the irascible or uh, like rascal inside yourself. Yeah, that, that's right. It's a it's it's a quote from Alan Watt, which I think um, I'm going to pull it up now, just so that I'm actually because um, I don't actually recall it off the top of my head. I just thought you know he's a super smart guy who's writing um, I admire and I just oh yeah know the element of irreducible rascality in yourself and I thought <laughs> you know that actually does sum up something about me and yeah. uh, you know so yeah I, I just thought it was uh it was appropriate and you know I don't want to be too um you know I, I probably don't use Twitter very well I kind of just read it in the way you described early in terms of just consuming information but also yeah. just to kind of take take the piss a little bit which is probably the worst way to use it but you know whatever <laughs> it's kind of organic to how I how I do things yeah I, I think that quote is spot on and I think some of it has definitely rubbed off on me I, I, yeah, sometimes I think you know, I am being a bit of a rascal, but I kind of like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, the key thing I learned from you is, you know, actually not relying on your intuitions or even if, if you are to learn to examine them and to actually think through where these ideas come from. And just because, you know, they're part of your culture or tradition or whatever, you know, or because they intuitively feel very right. Or even if you feel violated by the idea, it could be something else, which I think is, you know, sometimes people get angry because they feel their their most basic views on the world feel violated. I mean, you can examine them. And I think it's such a long path. You know, I think we're all, we all kind of doing this. And I've, I'm still on that path, you know, 20 years later. I don't know if it ever stops. But I think that's, the, that's like a, a super important fundamental view that I kind of took from you and made me, you know, much more intellectually rigorous and kind of detached from, you know, base intuitions. But anyway, I, I thought, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd convey that to you. I think, I think that was kind of important. I mean, I think the other thing, make an observation about you, I, I think you weren't great with social cues, like as in, and, and to kind of put another way. What are you, what are you, you saying, Misha? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> I think high school especially was like not your optimal social environment. And I think the flip side of that is that you're able to think things through from kind of first principles because that's how your, your mind operated. Mm. And and now, you know, to kind of fast forward, you're, you're in Oxford and, you, you know, you, you've been an integral part of this mission-driven organization and you're surrounded by your tribe you know, maybe those cues are much more obvious because you found your tribe, so to speak, but just kind of in the milieu of like high school kids, you know, you kind of, yeah, that wasn't it was your a bit tribe. rough. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's fair to say that I have flourished a bit more after high school than, than, than during high school. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, like to kind of go back to the, 
to touch on that, like, you know, you were effectively a founding member or driving force behind, you know, what effective altruism movement is today. You know, you, you know, you could have done any job, you know, we spoke about you doing consulting or banking or something to kind of, yeah. you know, make money and donate it. Make uh, money. Uh, 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 yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, you certainly could have, you, you had excellent grades and everything and you're a super smart guy. And, um, but, but you've kind of chosen a totally unique pathway and, you know, your role at 80,000 hours, you know, didn't exist yet. You created it because it's kind of part of your, your worldview and I think that kind of totally unique first principles pathway is a is a is a there's a straight line going from where you were in high school to kind of where you are and it's a line only you could could have kind of um, walked so that's something I I admire enormously yeah I think I got incredibly lucky that kind of the 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 set of odd philosophical views that I'd been advocating for like as a teenager and at university actually started like gaining some momentum and gaining public credibility at right at the time that my career was starting and that it needed people who could explain those ideas to a broader audience in a compelling way. Like oh, very few of the, at least certainly at least of the core ideas are, th- are things that I've come up with. But I think I do have a good eye for like noticing which ideas out of like a stew in a community are kind of particularly interesting and then figuring out how do you, how do you communicate them in a way that's engaging. And so that has been, yeah, I've, I mean, just in almost any universe, uh, there was no way that I was going to have a, anyone who was interested in paying me to do that for like the, the oddball views that I happened to develop as a teenager. But I just got struck at extre- extremely lucky here. Actually, just, just to, to give people a sense of how um, how that would have played in high school, you know, I recall you and I and our other good friend who's, who's you know, very smart and now a unionist, uh, you know, you'd kind of tell us, you know, we, we should have gone to you know, colonize other planets, you know, with chickens or ants or something to kind of increase the, 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 you know, the, the, qual- you know, the number of lives and the quality of life years out in the universe, you know, something to that effect. Mm. I'm, I'm probably garbling it a little bit, but, um, yeah, and, you, and, and you we guys were, love the chicken planets. Yeah. So we just <laughs> took the piss relentlessly, like even just thinking back now, the idea of chicken planets to like increase utils, like we did not let that go for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And just like, I just ruthlessly took the piss. Like, I mean, so e- even though like we kind of got where you're coming from, like it's so self-evidently hilariously ridiculous. <laughs> Um, you know, like it was just, it just did not fly in that kind of high school, you know, ribbing culture. Although obviously to be fair, you know, it's good that you can kind of think on the margins and the frontiers today, whatever those things are. So, yeah. Yeah. To be clear, I don't think it was my proposal that we use chicken specifically. I think maybe (laughs) you guys added that as an embellishment to make it funny. (laughs) I was like, I think I was probably just saying we should settle other like parts in space so we can have more people and more pleasure and better lives. Oh, like, no, sorry, more lives. The the better part is the part that's uh, strange that I'm not more focused on it. Yeah. Yeah. You guys just uh, did pay me out for, I think, a very long time over that, but I didn't budge one bit. You took it very well. So I want to talk about the conversation you had with Russ Roberts, which I thought was, which was unbelievable. So, you know, I, I haven't seen that side of Russ before because, you know, as the interviewer, he's, 
extremely open-minded and he's had a range of guests who, you know, who are very different and with whom he often, you know, might disagree and he'll kind of explore them. When you spoke with him, he went hammer and tongs. It was, <laughs> it was actually really impressive to watch him in full flight. And I have to say, it's probably the most effective, essentially a rebuttal of effective altruism and everything kind of stands for. Like, I mean, I, I, I think, I think he, I don't put words in his mouth. I imagine, I think he does respect very much what, what you guys are on about. So, you know, but, but just kind of philos- deeply philosophically, you know, I think it was, it was a very powerful rebuttal. And, 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 and to me, it kind of took me back to high school because I think Russ in the, you know, more articulately than anyone else almost kind of put forward, you know, a deeply traditionalist, a humble, you know, you know, we don't know what we don't know kind of perspective, very articulately, which has always kind of been the barrier you're up against with like other leaders of authority effectively over the yeah. last 20 years. And um, and he kind of took your point seriously and then kind of, you know, very effectively parried them, I thought. And, and it, ju- it just reminded me, you know, like of, of kind of star-eyed Rob trying to, um, <laughs> you know, make the world a better place in, in, in the way that you know, you thought was possible and and someone telling you, well, you know, maybe that's not the answer and maybe we should just have families. And and that's not what he was saying. I don't don't want to be, I don't want to kind of reduce it too much, but um, kind of basically pairing it with, with essentially a very traditionalist view. And so I I thought it was, I thought like I'd encourage everyone to go and listen to that conversation because you did a great job, but you know, I thought, I thought Russ was very effective as well. Interesting. Yeah, I guess. How did you find people? It? People have. Yeah, let's see. Uh, so I actually had a, uh, one of my main goals in the interview was just trying to explain ways that we didn't disagree. That I thought Russ thought that we did. Because I guess people tend to they, they often hear a very kind of bastardized view of ideologies that they kind of only hear about a little bit, and then if you don't really hear it and it's like full version, then almost any set of ideas can sound quite stupid, and you can think of easy easy rebuttals. So I was partly just trying to explain that there's a bunch of stuff that he might think that we be- that people involved in the effective altruism community believe, but but that we don't. And I think hopefully hopefully that worked. I was trying to find uh, a bunch of common ground. I suppose yeah, you you won't be shocked to hear perhaps that I uh, I don't agree that uh, with, with with Russ's views. I guess there is just a very different style where I'm more interested in like thinking about foundational like moral principles or like starting with the philosophy and then building up from there and being willing to discard common sense more often because I think there's like there's good arguments to do so and I think Russ is far more reluctant to do that maybe he just doesn't trust philosophy as much or he has an aesthetic where he prefers like a more holistic view or following like more common sense and more kind of traditional ways of doing things and I think there's something to be to be said for that but at least in the case of trying to uh, yeah in fact I think actually there's a strong case for doing that in someone's personal life when they're just trying to live their life and decide how to have a family and how to how to be a decent human being. When it comes to kind of changing the world, I'm I'm less convinced that yeah, those those lessons of traditional morality or or just like taking an overall kind of gut judgment on things does work. What does work so effectively? But I guess yeah, listeners will have to go and uh, go go to the interview and uh, have a listen and decide who they who they feel more sympathy with. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, and look, I'll, I'm I'm trying to have Russ has agreed to come on, but we've kind of had to oh, delay cool. it a few times. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put yeah. put put a different version to him as well. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm certain you guys 
agree on a range of things. And I think you were very effective in kind of trying to bring the conversation to things you agree with. I, I recall that he, for interest's sake, and I think to kind of sharpen his message, he resisted that, I thought, which, which, mm. which, was, which was actually great listening. And I just, in my mind, I just saw, you know, we're in a, we're in a village and you've got this, you know, Talmudic elder kind of <laughs> telling the starry-eyed, you know, young guy to hold his horses and actually, actually, you know, we know less than we think and maybe he should just, you know, get on with, you know, whatever he's meant to, meant to be doing. Yeah, that, that, that was the, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I don't want to reduce what he was saying to just like shut up and follow your gut. That's not what he was saying. Yeah. Um, so I encourage people to go and listen to it because I don't think we, we're, doing, we're doing it justice. And I think Rob, Rob was very effective as well. But I just thought it was one of the best podcasts I listened to last year because I was kind of shocked at, you know, I, I, I haven't seen a more effective case for kind of traditionalism in the face of effective altruism. Because, you know, frankly, you know, I, I, um, I've been arguing with you for 20 years. I know the arguments for effective altruism deeply. And I think, you know, they're extremely effective. I think it's kind of hilarious that, you know, you have to call it effective altruism because like 95%. What's the rest or of it? Yeah, what's the rest of it? Well, the rest of it is like 99% of philanthropy is just like bullshit signaling or whatever it is. Like, it's like, like we should just call it ineffective altruism. It's like, you know, or, or whatever it is. I have this argument all the time with a range of people. But I mean, uh, so, so in, in some respects, I'm deeply sympathetic to to your cause. Like, I think it makes total sense to me. And I was actually kind of delighted to hear Russ go on and actually um explain why he you know, really quite deeply and fundamentally disagreed with the approach. Yeah, it's one reason I was very keen to, to talk to him is uh, we haven't had that much, that many critiques of my overall worldview uh, on, the, on the show. And I think we could stand for more of them. The problem is it's just hard to get people to take time to really understand what, what anyone else thinks because everyone's got their own agenda and, and, and their own ideas. And I guess very often when we get critiques, it feels like you know, the person just hasn't spent enough time on it to like even know what we would say in response. So yeah, it was very good to get, I mean, Russ has obviously had several people involved in, effect, in the effective altruism community on the show, and he has read a bunch of our, bunch of our work. So uh, it was good to, and I, I mean, I suppose, he, and he also has this like very deep and kind of fleshed out view of his own, just based on having had so many conversations and don't, thinking about so many ideas over the years. Yeah. So uh, I think it was a, I think it was a good interview. It was a, it, it was fantastic to talk to him, especially after listening to him for 13 years. I say in the intro that I, I calculate that I have listened to, I think 700 or 800 hours of Russ Rollins interviewing people since I started. I guess that's what, uh, like 25 days straight without sleep. Yeah, It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's, I, I, I've it's, it's a very a, unbalanced relationship. Yeah, it's a little asymmetric, isn't it? Um, asymmetric. Yeah, I've um, I've listened to a fraction of that. Like I enjoy his podcasts very much, but I, I haven't listened to, to, to them all. But even I've noticed how much he's changed over time in terms of kind mm. of, you know, being less sure, you know, questioning. And yeah, you know, I actually, I, I really, I really love that temperament. Like I, 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 I um, it, it's very attractive to me, but why well, enough about Russ, I'll, I'll send him this, yeah. this transcript and we'll see, uh, we'll see what he says. <laughs> see what he um, how have your views changed since he started effective altruism? Yeah. I think the, the, the headline and slightly disturbing thing is that they haven't changed that much. I guess I, I first got a job uh, that was related to effective altruism in 2012. 
and I feel like I've seen much more of like of kind of the rest of the community and the rest of the world moving in my direction more than the reverse, which I'm not sure. I mean, that could be a good sign that I was, I had good intuitions and I was uh, ahead of the curve, or it could just be a sign that I'm stuck in my ways and no longer, no longer adjusting my views very much. But I guess, yeah, what, what stuff have I changed? I mean, I think at that time I was much more of an AI. I I was very much like kind of artificial intelligence is the most important thing. Uh, There's a good chance that it will be invented fairly soon. And if it does, it's like likely to go quite badly. I think now I'm much less sure about all of those things. Although I think there's a strong case of people who want to make a difference to think about, you know, how what effect will machine learning have, and what how long will it take to transform society if it does, and uh, how would it be integrated into politics and military and the economy in ways that aren't damaging. But I've become, I guess, a bit more pluralistic and a bit more uncertain about what are the most important problems and uh, what should we be directing people to, to to go and work in. Maybe I've also become more concerned about just general social decay or decline. It's a bit hard to put my finger on this, but it seems like you you just look at the US or the UK over the last five years and it seems like there's serious, well, there's like massive social problems and, and social conflicts. I'm kind of amazed that it seems like we can't do basic things that we used to be able to do decades ago. It's like we used to be able, like, I was just reading... That in 1948, I think New York City vaccinated 5 million people in two weeks. And now it seems like they can barely do 10% that amount with the technology 70 years later. It seems like this, yeah, I guess, I guess that's one angle on it is that in some ways our institutions are getting worse. And it seems like we're unlearning capacities that we used to have and um, becoming unable to respond to challenges. And then there's also, I mean, I guess it's US specific somewhat, but there's like serious uh, social conflicts that seem like they could go quite badly. And I'm I'm always interested to hear people's ideas for how can we resolve these? Because in the past, I maybe took just the steady march of progress in political institutions and our technology perhaps too for granted. Totally. I, th- I think I think that's something I've been speaking to people um, on this podcast a fair bit and, and things I've been reading about. I think it's interesting you say you took the steady march of progress for granted. I think I did as well. And I think that's a function of our generation. You know, if we think about the 90s, that's probably the peak period of, of you know that yeah. was that was the water Optimism. we swam in totally i mean you know soviet union's gone you know the heyday of american liberalism you know forward march was was basically you know i would never have expressed it at the time but kind of it's kind of clearer um in, in hindsight yeah totally and and i think you know institutional decay that you're describing you know feels totally real and you know, Peter Zihan might say as well, you know, obviously the, the, the you know, the, the age of US liberal world order is fading and the US is kind of becoming more introspective. And so you've got other kind of powers, you know, regional powers, you know, rising, you know, within, within their within their regions. Although I think, you know, it's an unbelievable moment because things could revert to something like the 19th century, you know, a more regional you know, geographically fragmented and politically fragmented world, or, you know, we could go to the next phase and and the next phase, you know, we've got, you know, we're obviously in a more digital interconnected world. You know, there is a universe we have, you know, Balaji, you know, who I admire very much talks a lot about this, about creating, you know, remote cities, online cities, online communities, um, with online currencies and the like. And I think, you know, we're certainly seeing a lot of movement there. And so I think you've got this kind of interesting inflection point now where either, you know, there are the kind of 
online stuff's kind of irrelevant. History just kind of goes in cycles and we kind of revert to a pre-20th century political dynamic. Or actually, you know, the future can be super bright and you're, you, you don't need to be tied to your geography and your accident of citizenship. You can actually create fully remote communities. And so I think this is an unbelievably exciting moment, but it's a total break to what we grew up in. So I think there's a lot to We're kind familiar of... With. Um, yeah, totally. So, I mean, so it could be scary or, uh, you know, it could be super exciting. Yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm a, I'm a doomer. I suppose it's more just from 1990 through, I guess, the Great Recession. We just had like some of the best years that humanity has ever had in terms of the, the trajectory of progress. And now... I guess we're like moral progress, technological progress, economic progress, globalization, lack of war. And I guess it's just as many people have noticed, like history is back. (laughs) We we can have moral regression. We can have political institutions becoming less functional. I guess many areas of technology are, are marching forward incredibly quickly. But then there's others like the ability to build houses where it seems like we've in some places, they've just forgotten how to actually construct buildings or do infrastructure. Yeah, so I suppose I'm more in, I'm much more worried about that than I was as a, as, a, as a child. I guess that's a result of events, perhaps, perhaps more than me. How, how confident are you in your views now compared to before? Yeah, I mean, it's a very it's a difficult thing because on some deep level that I don't often engage with, and I think most people don't often engage with, I think just like everything is insanely uncertain. It's like we don't we haven't solved philosophy. We don't really know how to construct great arguments or to like test which arguments are good people just disagree about all of these completely foundational issues we don't know how to steer the long-term future in a positive direction in a really reliable way we don't have a good ability to predict the the future (laughs) there's just so many areas where we're phenomenally ignorant and there's no particular reason to think that apes on earth are going to be capable of necessarily grasping the the true nature of the universe or guiding their own destiny uh, or answering Well, I mean, yeah. I'm very sympathetic to to that view. The kind of David Deutsch view would be, well, you know, we might be in these meat bodies, but, you know, our, our minds are universal computational machines. And so we actually can grasp everything. I know you've you've read his work as well. I, I don't really oh, know. I actually how, haven't. How I think about yeah, that. I haven't okay. really. Yeah, I haven't really engaged with Deutsch. I suppose some people have recommended it. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I should, uh, <laughs> should look, at, look into it more. Is, are there very compelling arguments? Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's a he's a look. I think you need to read his work like a few times to really um, yeah. grasp it. And I know people have become you know very evangelical about it, but it's look. I I I don't really have a view at this time. I, I just kind of recognize actually there are super smart arguments for you know a different view than I currently hold, and I'm and I just kind of I'm kind of going the Russ Roberts route where I'm like actually maybe I just know way less than I think, and I'm not really sure at this time, yeah. which I think is like the natural trajectory to aging is kind of like less yeah. confidence <laughs> and just more increased confidence that everyone's full of shit is kind sure. of the, yeah yeah, yeah or working through it. I mean, so so that's like one thing that. Uh, I can inhabit and I can see where that's coming from. I suppose on a, the thing is on a day-to-day basis, is you can't live that way. You, like, how do I go to work and be like, nothing is known, philosophy is unsolved, everything is uncertain. I think for that reason, I guess like people would probably take me for being much more confident about my views than I am. And I, because I guess I operate on a day-to-day basis and I write from like within my head, like from my inside view, which is I guess what I feel like I can contribute to discourse and what I can contribute to knowledge and what people think 
the fact that I'm like on some, from some like outside perspective, I'm probably wrong because there are other smart people who disagree with me is like somewhat disturbing when I, when I think about it and is, and is true. But then I'm just not sure that that is something that a human can really grapple with all the time. It's something you just have to like almost accept on some meta level and then forget so you can go about your day. Sure. I totally get that. So what percentage of your current views wouldn't you reveal publicly, do you think? Well, I've noticed in the past, just to kind of clarify that question, you're you're conscious of, you know, the effective altruism community and mission and, and, you know, there are divergent views within and kind of taking, you know, extreme views outside of that church is like kind of acceptable, but, you know, it is probably not good for the image or not good for, um, you know, internal cohesion or that's probably where I'm coming from. Yeah, interesting. I, I think cohesion is absolutely not an issue. Like people who are involved in effective altruism love people who criticize the ideas on, on substance. Yeah, you tend to get a lot of, a lot of kudos for that. I think the, the issue might more, more would be like why you want to drag us into these fights that other people are having and, and talk about these <laughs> hot button issues when they're like barely related to any other priorities that we have. So I think it's definitely true that I stay out of some political fights where I just, I mean, often I'm just very bored of them because they're discussed uh, at, su- at such a great length all the time. And it doesn't feel like there's anything interesting particular that I can say. But also, do you want to drag all of the things that you're associated in uh, associated with into these other discussions that are super ancillary to anything that you care about? I mean, I think most of my, yeah, I, I am like public about the great majority of things that I think. I guess often I don't present them. I guess if something is more controversial, I will often present it in like more oblique way, perhaps, or I like post something that's related and kind of offer an opinion that allows you to figure out what, what my opinion is, but I like, you don't have to be as, as in your face about it. What about animals, for example? Like I remember, hmm. yeah, so I mean, should we be eating animals? Because actually I mean, way more complex. Not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is, is that right? Okay. Because, because, you know, yeah. I mean, you've made the argument with me in the past, you know, it's a common argument now, but around, you know, the wild is, is an even uglier place in some respects yeah. than potentially, you know, some forms of farming. And, you know, obviously there are enormous numbers of animals that are alive only as a function mm. of the, of the kind of, you know, industrial farming machine. Mm. And so, you know, that I guess I'm alluding to like, have you kind yeah, of yeah. landed somewhere there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to be completely public about this kind of thing. So I suppose one line of like the, the argument in favor of veganism or vegetarianism, at least that I think is most compelling, is just that if you look at the lives of animals in agriculture, in you know, battery hands, like uh, pigs as they're raised, cows to a lesser degree, but, but also in some cases, their lives just seem really awful. And it doesn't seem like the pleasure that I or really anyone derives from eating meat is great enough to offset the intense suffering that these animals go through for, for, for months and sometimes sometimes years. So it seems from a, like considering the welfare of all beings equally or even like vaguely equally, it would be bad to pay someone to, to raise animals in that way. I suppose, yeah, so then you've got an, a rebuttal might be, well, those animals actually have positive lives. They enjoy their lives on net, even if they're not fantastic. And so it's positively good to pay someone to create animals that are having those lives. Uh, that, that's called the logic of the larder. I think I would be willing to go in for that, maybe, except that I just don't think it's empirically true that there are any significant number of animals in kind of uh, animal agriculture, at least as practiced in, in the US, 
and like other major rich countries for whom that is true. With the exception perhaps of um, cows that often are given a bit more space, they like tend not to be crowded as severely or treated as treated as harshly. Although I guess it's like it's a, it's a difficult question. Then another argument that you might pursue is, uh, well, yeah, animals on farms, maybe they do have bad lives and it would be better if they didn't exist from their own point of view. But what about wild animals? Uh, wild animals also, they suffer excessive heat, uh, excessive cold. They run out of water. They, they starve of hunger. They are preyed on by other animals and are constantly terrified of being eaten. And then sometimes they are eaten alive or they're dealing with disgust, horrible parasites that are like consuming them and causing them terrible itching and pain and so on. So people sometimes have a romanticized idea of what it is like to be a wild animal. But in practice, there's good reasons to think that their lives include a lot of suffering, though we don't know whether on net their lives are unpleasant, uh, like worse, worse than experiencing nothing at all. And then you might say, well, because of that, don't we want to perhaps create farms that are like less bad than the wilderness that would displace the wilderness? And that might be an improvement. I I, I suppose it's two things things you want to put in the equation. One is that animal agriculture tends to be more efficient at creating animals from a smaller amount of space. And I think the wilderness is unpleasant for many species. I suspect that animal agriculture in most places is 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 worse. So I think even when you go through and do the do the maths on this in a very perhaps some people would say grotesquely utilitarian way, I think you still come down thinking that it's better if people from a well-being maximizing point of view, better if people don't eat meat. <laughs> I'm not sure people have followed all of that. And what about fish? Because they live awful lives in, in the sea and then... Mm. Yeah. So that fish are different because they are, I guess, so they're, so they're wild animals and we're not kind of confining them ourselves. So, so let's see, if, the thing is, if you, if you pay for eggs, say, or you pay for chicken meat, then it's probable that there will be more chickens alive as a result of the fact that you're buying them and paying someone to raise them. If you catch fish from the sea, it's not obvious that that causes there to be more fish. In fact, it seems like the opposite is more likely, that there'll be fewer fish. And so then you have to evaluate, (laughs) at least from a total utilitarian point of view, whether a fish's life in the sea, the fish that you're eating, is better or worse than nothing. I guess also you'd want to know, like, uh, does does taking fish out of the sea cause it to be more or less fish? And maybe there'll be like smaller fish rather than bigger fish that you caught. Some of that gets like very hard to calculate. Fortunately, I think with fish, we can somewhat set aside those like more complicated arguments and just look at the fact that because we kind of have fished the seas to death, most fish now on the margin, in as much as humans want to eat more fish, they tend to raise them in aquaculture. Oh, thank goodness. And and (laughs) aquaculture is actually like... However bad being a fish in the open sea might be, I suspect that uh, well, being a fish in aquaculture is probably far worse because they're incredibly crowded and suffer disease at quite high rates and they're just like swimming in the feces of other fish. It really looks like a pretty grim life. So I guess for that reason, I'm not keen to encourage fish, fish consumption. I mean, all of this said, I think there's like, if you're trying to maximize the amount of good that you do, there's lots of ways you can have much more impact than just shifting around your personal consumption, whether that is of like electricity or like your effect on climate change directly or, or, or whatever you eat. I think most of these things are far, far less important than what you decide to do with your career, which is why that's our focus at 80,000 hours. But yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting analytical exercise that gets you to think through uh, how would you calculate well-being impacts of different actions and you quickly start to see just how complicated and messy and sometimes kind of intuitive those calculations can be. Sure. And how are you going at 80,000 hours in terms of, you know, you've been there for a while now. How would you assess your impact and has it exceeded or not your expectations? Yeah. So I've been involved in effective altruism professionally for about 
eight or nine years now. I guess the reality is that so much stuff is out of our hands in our lives and how much impact I have is to a very large extent determined by just how sticky and how interesting and how compelling do people find the ideas that are circulating around in ineffective altruism. In as much as I'd succeeded or like I felt that I had a lot of impact, that might just be me learning that in fact these ideas had a lot of legs to begin with and it wasn't so much what I did and vice versa. In as much as things have gone poorly, uh, it might just be that we're learning that the prospects aren't so good for that set of ideas regardless of what we say. That said, I think, I mean, a lot of people have gotten on board. There's a lot more people, a lot more ideas coming out. The Effective Altruism Forum continues to just impress me because it demonstrates the number of really smart people who have gotten very seriously engaged with the ideas that we've put out. And indeed, not only engaging with them, but adding to them, like researching new topics and, and increasing the, the stock of knowledge that we have. So that's, that's heartening. I suppose on the other hand, the reality is that most people, even in kind of our, our strongest target audiences, which I guess would be, you know, undergraduates at some of the universities where there's big student groups and well, there's events that mention effective altruism or 80,000 hours. I think really only 20 or 30%, even in those places, have heard of us and many of them would kind of misunderstand what we're about. So we really haven't reached, we're nowhere near reaching saturation despite, I guess, thinking about this stuff for eight years. Part of that has been a conscious decision to not focus on growing the number of people who take an interest before we've actually solidified the ideas and can, can justify them. Because so I think effective altruism, especially in the early days, back in 2011, 2012, had this somewhat sophomoric quality where we had like only a quite superficial knowledge of any of the things that we were talking about. And that could give people quite a bad impression that it's just a bunch of kids. And over time, I think we've been able to flesh out our ideas and do them a bit more justice now. In terms of me, me personally, I mean, the 80,000 Hours podcast is super popular with a niche group of people. We get a phenomenal amount of positive feedback. And I think that has made me feel over the last three years, like I am really adding something that I'm not sure that someone else exactly would be able to do. I've never, like, there's nothing that I've ever produced that has received anywhere near, like, the amount of, of support from, like, uh, that has as many, like, intense fans as that show. And actually, for the next year, we're planning to rearrange things a bit at 80,000 hours, where I'm going to step back from a bunch of the other projects that I've been working on in order to just focus more on the podcast, because we're like, look, we've got this, we've got this product that the people who like 80,000 hours the most are just, like, super fans of, like, why don't we just make more of this thing, <laughs> awesome. rather than trying to fit it with other stuff that maybe has been a, a bit less popular or where we're not quite sure that the product product customer fit is quite right. So I'm happy about that. I mean, I'm realistic though about maybe I'm too complacent. I think that might be a criticism where I'm just I'm quite happy with the thing that I'm doing and I'm glad to see effective altruism growing bit by bit year after year. But I think the the startup people would say like why aren't you growing 50% every year? Why aren't you doubling your audience like every every couple of months? Why isn't that your goal? And I think yeah, I'm not sure I have a fully compelling answer for them. Mm. And so are you, are you gonna are you gonna are you gonna marry? Are you gonna have kids? <laughs> marry? Uh yeah, maybe, probably. That seems that seems pretty plausible. Having having kids, I think I I, I lean against. Mostly just because I wow. Well, so my inside view is that I imagine having kids and I'm like, this seems like it would really make my life quite a bit worse. Cause almost all of the things that I enjoy doing now would be so much more difficult if I have kids, you know, just traveling spontaneously, going out. I guess we can't do that with COVID, but normally going out, spending lots of time with friends, uh, like not having responsibilities that I have to worry about on weekends and, and evenings and not having to schedule my time like that, that aggressively in order to fit things in. It just seems like the lifestyle of being a parent, for me at least, would be really bad. The, I guess an, an outside view perspective would say I'm probably going to have kids anyway, because I think most men who say this when they're in their 30s, 
for one reason or another, do end up having kids or at least have historically. So despite my protestations, there's got to be at least a pretty good chance that I that I do end up having kids for one reason or another. Maybe my, maybe my preferences will change or maybe I'll make a huge mistake. I don't know. Should I should I have kids, Michelle? I guess you've got three. You're, you're like you're actually fairly unusual among my my, my friendship group. Oh, for, I'm for so, I'm unusual among my friendship group. Like it, I mean, like none of my close friends have kids. They're all older than me. I think you know I'm 32 now with three kids, four and under, and I think that's like pretty typical historically. And then suddenly, the last few. Uh, decades or you know last generation it's suddenly quite unusual look i'm i'm a huge advocate because you know i've like i i love it and you know i I think uh you know i take a very brian kaplan perspective on on it and Mm. you know i find it enormously rewarding but you know it's absolutely transformative in terms of your lifestyle obviously and you know absolutely there are people who've had kids and hated you know you can't really give it back and you can't you can't go back um and so you know i i don't i don't belittle that choosing i think it's very hard to know but that said i always kind of knew i'd have kids as well so we're in slightly different boats so i i'm very i you know i'm very reluctant to kind of give any advice um it's, yeah i'm but but that said i think you know, you know, after your first kid, you know, like once you've had one kid, you know, whether you like it or not, to be honest, if you don't, okay, well, you know, you're in a bit of trouble, but just keep it to one. But if you do, what I don't understand is not continuing because the biggest cost is a fixed cost of lifestyle change effectively. And sure, there are variable costs along the way that are pretty meaningful, but, you know, you can always kind of work through that. I just don't understand why we've kind of stopped at two kids. You know, some of it's the car thing, you know, with child seats or whatever, but, but like all that's so surmountable. I don't know why we see so few families, relatively speaking with like, you know, without three and four kids, like in my, you know, I, I'd, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a baby maximalist. Like, you know, I, I, I loved, you know, I, I had a really good time with my first kid, you know, each kid has only been, you know, profoundly, you know, beneficial. I can't imagine life without the last kid. And so, but, and yet I'm imagining life without the next two kids and people don't see that symmetry. And I think it's very unusual that we kind of stop, you know, once you've already chosen to have any kids. Yeah, it, it is quite funny. Yeah, I, I definitely buy the Brian Kaplan argument that I guess you get such a massive discount on the second, third and fourth child in terms of you've already got all the infrastructure and your life is already organized to have a kid. That was forced on you the first time. So why not have a few more kids? Because uh, then you'll have, I guess, a greater chance of having one that you really like and you have uh, more interesting people to, to um, uh, like a more interesting family to deal with when you're, when you're much older. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I also kind of buy the idea that parenting doesn't have to be that hard that, you know, as long as you do a kind of passable job and don't abuse your kids, then they're kind of going to turn out the way they're going to turn out. I think my parents didn't parent me that aggressively. And basically I'd probably turned out the way I was going to turn out no matter what they'd done, as long as it wasn't terrible. And totally. I guess philosophically, I, I also like the, the free range kids idea that it's like mostly kids can entertain themselves, especially if there's a couple of them, uh, you don't have to be like minding them and that helicopter parenting all the time. So I've got, I've got all of these beliefs that are very consistent with potentially having a, having a large family, but at the same time, and it's an interesting point that you raised that I guess you're, well, a lot of people report that their preferences change massively when they have a kid. And I guess, at the time when they were doing the previous thing, you know, going out several nights a week in London, they really enjoyed that. But now they have this very different lifestyle. They've like transformed as a person, but now they approve the thing they're doing now. What should one, what should one make of that? Presumably if I had a kid, I would like end up enjoying it more than I imagine that I would enjoy having a kid right now. 
But at the same time, I don't feel like I really have any higher level desire to change my preferences in order to become the kind of person who uh, would enjoy being a parent. Well, I, I find that really interesting. You know, I, um, I've i had my share of partying and going out and traveling and I, and I kind of felt that way. Like I, I went, you know, I had a, I had a great 20s, so, so to speak. Yeah. And I don't miss that at all, you know. And, and, and I think it's a personal preference. You know, one of my best mates is in... In the US, he's in his mid thirties, you know, he's having a great time. He goes out and travels and you know, meets lots of girls, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, th- that's a certain lifestyle and, you know, he loves it and he wouldn't, he hasn't given up for the world. And to be honest, I don't think it's a worse life than me. You know, I, I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty non-judgmental about this. You know, I think everyone has their own shtick, and you know, that's that's his shtick, and you know, I think everyone has their own their own thing. For me, like, it's interesting. I mean, there's always this kind of choice theory. You know, how can you choose to be someone with different preferences? So there's yeah. like this fundamental kind of philosophical problem there. But you know, for me, the decision was kind of easy in the sense that you know over the long run you know do i want to be the kind of person who has kids do i want to be a parent do i want to be you know like and and the answer is kind of obviously yes like i mean and it's only solidified since i've had kids and interesting you know once i had my first kid and i told my one, one friend how much like I absolutely loved the child on and, and you know loved being a dad. And and she kind of goes, Ugh, you know, it's just a chemical change in your head. And I'll, and I'm like, well, no. maybe. But like, you know, so what? Everything's a chemical change um in totally. your head. And it's persisted. And, you know, like I, I think people underestimate the power and it's for individually. Like I think socially I'm a massive pro family guy. I think it's a massive mistake we've done over the last 50 years or, or whatever, but even just individually, you know, like people underestimate the, the kind of profundity of having this human that you're kind of watching go from like a tadpole, you know, into a fully fledged human. I mean, I don't even have the, the words and I probably sound totally lame and, and cliche, but it's unbelievable what, experience. What specifically did you learn, Misha? Like, how about you go through it and then you can tell me the profound breakthroughs that you've made intellectually. Oh, yeah. I mean, as I said, I'm not even articulating it, but like, and it's not, it's not the, it's, and I know you're, you're, you're kidding, but, you know, every day, now my, my, my boy learns a new phrase or, you know, they look different because they're growing so quickly or they're, you know, it's stupid parent stuff that sounds, even me explaining to you now, just sounds so freaking boring and irrelevant. I totally get that, but it's a source of profound joy to me every day. And that frankly is like not the experience of going to a nightclub and, you know, waking up with a hangover and having a good time. You know, that's like totally irrelevant and something I do not miss for a second. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think you can choose what kind of person you want to be. And, you know, the kind of person I, you know, like being more is someone who, you know, raises lives and literally, and, you know, pursues, you know, other things aside from, just going out and stuff so yeah it seems like from a social policy point of view we should just tax tax people like me who don't want to have kids and then make transfers to the people who are most inclined to have extra children i guess some countries are kind of doing this but you can you find effectively the people do that. for whom yeah i think there, there are like policies what's it like the family tax benefit a and b in australia and things like that yeah which i was very skeptical of but i think it makes sense huh. yeah 
Yeah, because I guess from one point of view, if you're like, well, society has to reproduce itself in order to continue to exist, and we benefit from the fact that previous generations did that, so we have to pay that forward to the next generation and make sure that we reproduce. And there's two ways you can do it. One is uh, you can not have any kids and pay tax, and the other one is to like receive that tax and have kids because you're someone who would prefer to raise children uh, than, yeah. than, than make more money. Uh, I mean, makes- th- th- there's a whole social policy thing which we don't need to kind of go into. I kind of wrap it on forever about how degenerate the current setup is and how ridiculous... <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I've got, I've got this line, which which like everyone disagrees with me on, but I kind of stand by it. You know, like modern capitalism and you know kibbutz socialism have converged. You know, in a kibbutz, you know the kibbutz kids ran around and everyone was a parent and they were kind of shared parenting. In modern capitalism, yeah. both parents need to work and outsource child rearing to a childcare center. What the hell is the difference? Yeah. It's the same bullshit, and it doesn't make sense. And look, we don't need to kind of go into what other kind of plausible alternatives and I understand why it's there but um, I mean I think kind of leaving all the public policy side st- stuff aside I think personally it's, it's easily been the most fulfilling thing I've ever done and it's a bit of a cliche as well yeah what, what, what do you think makes someone be the kind of person who wants to want to have children versus someone like me who yeah. doesn't well I, I, do, I, do you think I, do you think it's upbringing or genetics or, or yeah, noise yeah yeah, yeah. um Look, I'm a, as I said, I'm a bit of a genetic determinism. My, my bias, I reckon if you were raised by your parents or you're raised in the wild, you would have been basically the same. You know, like you, you got top marks in high school, you were the ducks, you know, and I reckon, you know, if you had a tiger mum or if you had your current mum, who's not a tiger mum, you know, it would have been the yeah. same outcome, you know. So I think kind of similarly those values, you know, I mean, it, look, I don't really know what the definitive answer is. You know, I grew up with a more traditional background and, and, you know, so it's easy to kind of point towards an argument that that kind of imbued its, you know, system of values on me. I think that's totally plausible. So I don't really have an answer, I guess. Yeah. it's. I find it very funny that... um. I guess because we didn't really have that much choice about whether we had children or not in the past, that evolution hasn't actually had to motivate us to necessarily, or at least like many people don't really want to have children. They don't really want to reproduce, which is evolutionarily an enormous disadvantage <laughs> in the current world. Presumably well, over time, that that opinion would die out because it's so disadvantageous. Well, I guess, um, but in I the guess past, the, it wasn't necessary to want it. Well, I, I guess the, the wanting only need to manifest in going and having a bunch of sex, right? Which we, right. Which we, which we certainly do want, I guess. Um, exactly. And, and, but, 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 obviously, because, but because it could focus on that proxy, it like yeah, didn't have we to could focus fix on the terminal contraceptives. Goal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so suddenly, uh oh, you know, evolution's kind of <laughs> I made a huge mistake a moment huge where mistake. <laughs> I, I focused all on sexual desire, and these monkeys have figured out how to kind of jack that, and uh, and now like people are having kids. So. Um, yeah, no, I think yeah. that's, that's right. I mean, evolution will win in the long run, if there is a long run. Well, humans might get there, you know, all the kind of, you know, uploading yourself and transhumanism stuff. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So you're a, you're a podcaster. I want to get your advice. I'm kind of new to this. I'm just kind of getting new kid. I'm just having my first batch of conversations, basically. How do you think this is going? Yeah, I think it's going well. I, I mean, I it's... It's hard for me to tell whether people are going to be interested in this stuff because it's interesting to us no to reminisce idea. about the past. Yeah, I have absolutely is, no idea. It is something that I haven't really heard before is uh, like people who've been friends since they were 12 or 13, like talking about like what they've noticed about one another as they've grown older and like where they think their opinions came from. Well, let I me tell you why I think there it's There must be a relevant. genre there, but maybe I just don't get into it. Well, I mean, I, I suspect someone coming to this cold 
would not be super interested. But I think there's a whole universe. Like, like I don't want to go on this conversation and have a discussion about effective altruism. Like, you have your own yeah. podcast where you discuss that. You've got other podcasts where you've discussed that. You know, William McCaskill or whoever else has kind of kind of gone, you know, ad nauseum about all that They've covered stuff. that. They've covered it. Like, I'm, I'm so bored of it. I've been talking to you about it for 20 years. I just don't really care, to be honest. I mean, we've kind of yeah. covered it for like five minutes on this on this chat. You know, I think what's interesting is that um, you have a presence out, out in the world. And I think, you know, I mean, it's totally selfish. This is kind of the conversation I just wanted to have. So maybe you're right. Maybe it's not interesting to anyone else. But I think there is probably a small segment of folks who uh, who know you and know your presence and know where you've come from who are kind of interested. I would be. Like, I'd be super fascinated to have this conversation or to hear a conversation with people I admire and where they've kind of come from. So I think that's the kind of niche target audience. Yeah, it is it's such a difficult question to analyze like where did your beliefs or attitudes your like personality come from like on an individual level how can you separate the biological stuff from the people that you knew from the from the teachers that you had all that kind of thing uh, and when people have asked me that in the past usually i've just been like look i, I don't know there's there's no I, there's no experiment there's no like actual data that i've received that can really pin this one down someone asked me recently i was like when did you start when when did you become the kind of person who wanted to independently form opinions I just I could remember so many times from primary school where I would like give my teachers a really hard time and be like, no, this is wrong. <laughs> You're misunderstanding this. It suggests it's like a pretty deep personality trait in that case, or at least I got it from my parents uh, very early on. Well, that's why I, I, we kind of kick this off because, you know, I mean, you know, I was doing interesting stuff before high school, I guess, like to a, to a young kid. But for me, you know, you were so formative and, and you and the rest of the guys were so formative in me kind of developing those muscles and those capabilities and that kind of inquiring mind um, that that's something I wanted to focus on. And, and to be fair, who the hell cares out there in the, in the universe? <laughs> but um, let's, let's, let's talk about one way you influenced me, actually, because I think, yeah, you did have quite a big impact on on my beliefs in the long run. I suppose, yeah, like a lot of people, I was pretty inclined towards just like traditional leftist views when I was a when I was a teenager. But you you were always there, kind of pushing back on that, trying to present a more kind of conservative perspective, a less politically correct perspective sometimes, and and a more like pro market perspective. And I guess that the last one is the one that that ended up taking. Remember, you invited me just I think off the cuff to this uh, was it Center for Independent Studies in Australia I had some learning weekend camp to learn about classical liberalism and learn about yeah. like why why markets are valuable did we do that together and I found it did we I think we mm. did do that together yeah so I guess all, all of the all of the people out there who are like I, I like this Rob guy and the effective altruism stuff and he seems like he really cares but why is he such a like markets oriented person why is he like talk like an economist to some extent they've got you to blame Mitchell. I think mm. I, I really did it really I mean I just found it so intellectually engaging because the people there were far more interested in the world of ideas than almost any other group that I'd encountered before, like like integrating philosophy and politics and so on. I think these days classical liberalism uh, has something of a bad name. I think people who use that term on the internet tend to have beliefs that, that, that I don't share. But this was really about like, well, how can we like enhance human autonomy and like in what ways are markets useful for, for organizing things in a way that promote flourishing? And yeah, I really changed my views a lot. And I've moderated since then, but I, I, like relative, I guess, to many other people who are socially concerned, I am just like more 
skeptical of the capability of governments to directly solve things rather than trying to direct markets to do it themselves. I imagine there are a whole bunch of listeners out there who would like cringe and hate me for for that impact. I think <laughs> I think this for, for context, Center for Independent Studies, um, you know, is is one of the kind of libertarian think tanks in the country. And I think you know, I, I've I used to be a pretty ideological libertarian and free marketeer and stuff. And I think also that's partly a function of that nineties two thousands moment. And I think it's in in, you know, in many respects still valid but i've certainly moderated you know since then and and changed in some respects but i think you know there are moments where you read a book or you speak to a person or you you know attend a conference where you just kind of bite into this new rich vein of information and knowledge and it's totally you know life-changing like wow what is this and you know reading adam smith or Locke or whoever for the for the first time it's kind of like that it's kind of like you know or milton friedman you know it, it's very elegant you know it's high explanatory power it's a lovely model and you know these are super smart people who have certain views so even if you disagree with them which is fine you know I found it like enormously intellectually rewarding at, at the time. And, you know, since then, you know, there have been other books and other moments, you know, and often quite frequently I'm, I'm kind of encountering these totally new worlds of, of information, but that was certainly uh, certainly one of them. I honestly reckon, it, you know, if people hear this, they're, they're like, you know, shake their head and go, fuck that Misha guy, like <laughs> <laughs> for, for uh, introducing yeah. Rob to that. So what keeps you up at night, Rob? I used to worry, or at least I spent a lot more time in my day worrying about stuff, I think, uh, a bunch of years ago. Maybe the main thing that made a difference there, which has made me kind of the person, kind of sort of person who just like doesn't spend that much time worrying about almost anything in particular, is starting to take antidepressants, which really led to a personality shift where I just like no longer have any impulse to kind of lie in bed and think about ways that things could go wrong and reflect on them, which I suppose you could imagine uh, ending badly, but in, in practice has gone has gone pretty well. So you take them now still? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I guess I plan to just keep taking them indefinitely. What do you take? Um, I take something called Wellbutrin or Brupopion. Yeah, 300 milligrams extended release. I, uh, yeah, I have a, I have a, if people go to my website, robwiblin.com, it links to an article I wrote explaining like how I ended up taking antidepressants and the impact it had and why I generally recommend that people give it a go if they think there's a, a good chance that it could uh, help them. Wow. I haven't read that. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So give me the, the, the one minute snapshot. I'm keen to understand if you weren't super depressed, what brought it on? And then whether you're taking a kind of what kind of dose you're taking relative to, you know, actually having depression and kind of impact it's had in your life. Yeah, yeah. So why, uh, how did I end up taking it? So basically, maybe just all of my life. I mean, I think I'm like kind of a cheerful person in some ways, but I'm also just morose. And I would go through like weeks where I just felt like very down and unmotivated and pessimistic about the future. Maybe like one week out of every month would be like that. And I'd done like all of the stuff that was like natural to do in that situation. You know, I like had some pretty good like cognitive behavioral therapy kind of habits in my head. I was like exercising regularly. I lived with good friends. My job was fulfilling. I was healthy. Uh, I didn't have pain. I had like a good desk set up. So it's like lots of things that you might naturally do in order to try to get over feeling sad, I had already done. And so I was like, well, what's next on the list to give it a go to try to make myself happier than I am? And I was like, well, let's let's try antidepressants. And I suppose there's potentially some downsides to taking drugs. Like sometimes it can have side effects that are unpleasant. But a, a positive thing about, say, taking antidepressants relative to 
meditating or going to therapy or something like that is that it's just a pill that you take once a day it kind of only takes five or ten seconds and it's not not that difficult to do so it's something that doesn't require a lot of willpower to continue to do if, it, if it's benefiting you and i think another part of my reasoning was look i'm not i'm not that depressed but if i try out this chemical and it makes me happier then i can just keep taking it for ages and so that could be a huge, an enormous benefit from that experiment. On the other hand, if I take it and I notice no difference or it makes me sadder, then I can just stop taking it and it will probably the experiment will only take a month or two. I was like, well, even if I think there's a relatively low chance of the uh, antidepressant that I try helping, then it seems like it's worth, worth taking it a crack and seeing whether I can notice any, any impact that it has on me. And I tried one and that didn't seem to have that much impact. I was like, well, I'll try a different class of, of antidepressant one that has fewer side effects and like works for different people. I guess bupropion, well, butrin is a, it's kind of a standalone one. It's in a class of its own and uh, it doesn't have a lot of the side effects that SSRIs that people are familiar with uh, have. And it just like made a huge difference. I, I, I basically just stopped having those weeks when I was down. I stopped being like worrying about ways that things could go wrong very much, uh, as I was saying. And I'm just like much more on an even keel. It's not like I'm never, never unhappy or down or anything, but just like so, so much less than before. It's, it's pretty noticeable. So I think, yeah, the, the experiment paid off and I just don't really have much reason to, to stop taking it because I don't suffer any negative side effects that, that, that I can observe. I guess, uh, talk, wow. to, talk to your doctor if you're thinking about doing that. But yeah, it, uh, I suppose these days I mostly just like worry in the abstract about ways that things could really go off the rails. Cause I feel as long as I can keep like maintaining a sensible, sensible life and uh, taking, taking more future I'm going to be like fairly cheerful and living a good life. Well, kind it, of no matter is what, that, no matter is that what bad for you, for your, for your goals and for your careers? Because I, uh, you know, I remember mm. you being very anxious about, you know, you know, people being killed or animals being killed or suffering generally. And and I imagine that was quite a motivating force for you to get to where you are. Maybe the antidepressants are why you're not worried about growing, you know, your podcast or affecting altruism <laughs> so much. Quite, quite as aggressively. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, people have noticed that uh, among people, for example, who are very concerned about the suffering of animals in animal agriculture or the suffering of animals in the wild or you know the suffering of beings that are usually neglected and uh, or like pe- people in situations where they're not very visible uh it seems like a surprising number of them suffer from severe depression and i do wonder whether it's the case that because they are like are so familiar with what deep suffering is themselves they're more able to empathize with other people or animals that are in terrible pain and they're maybe more more drawn i guess maybe they're also just more drawn to think about it because of the kind of bias towards negative thoughts on balance, I, 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 yeah, I guess I, I did spend less time ruminating on like bad things in the world than I used to. On balance, I think that's helpful though, and it's made me more productive because I wasn't really get like reflecting on how things are bad. I'm just not sure that that adds very much value or motivation relative to just being generally energetic and optimistic and enthusiastic about how things are going to go. Like once you know and have like fully grappled with like just how awful some things in the world are. Mostly it's time to get on and try to be an, an enthusiastic and happy person who is motivated to act rather than just going back over the same material that you're familiar with. That's, that's, that's kind of my take anyway. Uh, I suppose it, it's possible that I've become less empathetic as a result of just maybe because I, I don't like suffer so much anymore. I find it harder to relate to people who are having a bad time. I think that that potentially is a, is a downside, but I suppose it's hmm. one that I'm, that I'm willing to take. Well, good luck. It sounds like um, you're pretty happy with the decision. Was learning Spanish a mistake? Yeah, I guess some some context here for listeners is that uh, in general, I think learning languages is a mistake. And I'm very frustrated that some schools, at least or some English-speaking countries, go through this fantasy process of teaching kids foreign languages when the reality is that 
like 1% of them actually end up speaking the language that they're supposedly learning. It's just a complete waste of their time. We should just let them go and play or go really hard and actually teach them the language properly and, and send them to the country so that they're doing it rather than doing this middle ground where they learn a bunch of useless information that then they immediately forget. And I, I have been public about this. <laughs> I mean, another thing is just people talk about the economic value of learning languages, but I think when you measure it, the job and professional gain that you get from learning a language is often pretty weak. And very often it doesn't end up matching. You learn some language and it doesn't end up matching what you're going to actually want to do. The odds of getting a good match between the language that you learned at primary school or high school and the actual job that you're going to take later is pretty poor, which, which dramatically reduces any economic return. I mean, if people enjoy learning languages, then that's fine, but it's not necessarily that justifiable at school. And if you want to teach the culture of a foreign country, just do that rather than going through some fake, going through the motions, teaching them Italian. I mean, I learned Italian at primary school obviously forgot it all as soon as I left primary school because I wasn't even learning Italian anymore. I was learning some other some other language as Spanish as I have it. Anyway, yeah, wasn't a mistake to learn Spanish. I, I guess I actually did end up learning Spanish. I suppose I'm in the in the 1% of people who did actually learn the, uh, speak the, the language. And you're very good high still. Because, yeah, I'm actually better at Spanish now than I ever have been because, so I learned it somewhat at high school because I went to Spain for a year when I was 15, 16, which I guess is perhaps interesting to talk about. And recently, to my surprise, I started kind of relearning it again, using reading the news in Spanish and uh, listening to radio programs in Spanish as, as as the way to do it. I guess I can't understand really why it was justified as part of an, my education program. I would have benefited a lot more and I think society would have benefited a lot more from me learning his, like more history or more philosophy or really kind of anything else that might have some more direct bearing on my life. But I, for some reason, I just really enjoy speaking Spanish. Maybe it's like the signaling party trick kind of element of it. I think another aspect of it is just it like tickles your brain because it's like doing a Sudoku constantly of like having to think about how do I construct this sentence and what's the right word. And once you like get sufficiently good at it, you're like mostly succeeding. So you get this like constant positive feedback of feeling like you're, 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 you're speaking the language. Yeah, I... I enjoy it, but it was worth it. It was I guess worth in it. retrospect, it was worth it. <laughs> what, I guess you, you, you've ended up learning Spanish, right? Because your your partner is Mexican. Yeah, so I'm I'm married into the language, but you know, even before that, uh, you know, I've travelled. You know, my, my like a big regret of mine is not having gone exchange in high school, university. Like I I know you went for for an extended period of time to to Spain, and I think that would have been enormously rewarding. And I and I wish I had done that. And I, my my kids, you know, almost certainly will do that. But, you know, I, I've traveled a ton, so I can't really complain, I guess. And I've traveled a bunch in Central and South America. And so that's probably where my Spanish initially came from. And, um, you know, ordering food or going on dates with girls who don't speak uh, English is a great way to, uh, to, 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 <laughs> to, to, to get up the curve. Um, but also kind of took learning quite seriously for, for a little while there. You know, when, when, I went, when I went, you know, traveling, I kind of took classes and the like to kind of get up the curve as quickly as I could. And then and by coincidence, it turned out to be kind of handy when I, I married a Mexican. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I love Latin America. I think it's my favorite mm. part of the world. And I can kind of, at the right moment, imagine retiring there and going and enjoying uh, the culture of Colombia or Mexico, which is in many ways is kind of preferable than, <laughs> than, than Anglo culture. Yeah, totally. Um, so, so, so perhaps uh, it will end up completely changing my life. So what did you get out of being a, an exchange student in Spain? Yeah, I, you were saying that one of your life regrets is not going on exchange, I guess, at high school or, or university. Yeah, it's understandable because it, it sounds really good on on paper, but it can be really tough, I guess, especially if you're going to a country where you don't speak the, the language. And I think like reflecting on it later, I've concluded that going on exchange to Spain when I was like really quite young for such a long time 
as like, as like a more plausible case for shaping my personality in a direction, maybe than the many other experiences that I've had. Like, so to explain when I went there, I was, I guess I was like late 15, early 16. I didn't really speak almost any Spanish and I was just placed into a Spanish family and they didn't really have a very good process for like selecting families that were like going to be particularly good at uh, like absorbing exchange students where they're particularly stable, <laughs> like, like had experience doing this before. They didn't have any experience. Uh, there was like substantial conflicts within the family. None of them spoke English. Indeed, like in general, just like in Spain at the time, at least uh, people's English was, was very poor. So there was like very few people that I could talk to. And so I guess, I guess Skype wasn't around either. So I couldn't really like talk to people from Australia all that often. I barely like really had, I, I like spoke to my parents really only occasionally every, every couple of weeks. So you're like very lonely in a sense. It's incredibly draining because you're trying to, you're just constantly learning this other language and speaking this other language, which is like makes every task that you're doing intellectually challenging, basically. You're also constantly thrust into kind of like awkward social situations that you don't actually even understand what's going on. So it's like people are organizing things to go around you and you're just like, like, where are we going? I don't know. What is the role that I should play here? I don't actually understand what interaction is happening, at least to begin with. Yeah. In the, in the, so the mother in the family that I was in, I think was, uh, I guess, with the benefit of hindsight, was probably quite, was quite depressed and was having like personal struggles. And I wasn't like especially happy there. So after a couple of months, I was moved to a different family that was a lot better, <laughs> where I guess some, to begin with, some of the kids spoke English. So I could actually talk to them and, and, and have friends and uh, communicate, communicate what was going on in my head. But still, a lot of the time, you're like around people who don't speak English. I, I can't really communicate with them. It's you're very stuck in your head, right? I guess sometimes, you know, I could go to a computer and like read, read the internet in English, but at that time, the internet wasn't really widespread. No one had phones. So you spend a lot of time by yourself. You spend a lot of time thinking, like also just like dealing with the fact that the situation around you was super awkward and you don't know what the hell is going on and just like getting through that without it being a disaster. Like being, I guess, being your own person and being super independent and not really expecting people to tell you what to do or like expecting people to tell other people what to do. Yeah, I think I just became like... Stoic, perhaps, or just like detached, almost. I was less engaged with the people around me because I couldn't even talk with them. And I think, to some extent, that that stuck later on. I mean, the the last the last three or six months was quite different because by then I was able to speak Spanish fairly well. It was like a lot less. I was a lot less alienated from the situations around me. But yeah, you really become you have to become your own person in a, in a, in, a, in a situation like that because other people just aren't gonna gonna guide you because they can't even talk to you. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I, I think. Um... You know, I think I think lots of different people have different experiences, and I, I do recall you coming back, and you weren't particularly um, pleased. But you know, I, I imagine a lot of that's different today. You know, with WhatsApp and uh, Zoom and stuff like that, I imagine, you know, it, it, it might be less isolating, and you might get less out of it in, in some respects. But you'll um, you'll certainly feel more connected to the to to the broader world. I imagine almost going a university would almost be even better, you know, in terms of just being already having matured more and being more independent and being able to, you know, be less reliant on a host family. Yeah, that seems right. It's pretty unusual to go away for such a long time to a country where we don't speak the language at 16. That was like a fairly aud- audacious move. Because I don't want to say that it was better for all. Like I mostly have positive memories of like of interesting things that happened, um, especially later on. And I like I'm, I was going to go back to to Spain uh, uh, early last year to to visit a whole bunch of people I met then and pe- yeah people I became friends with and I guess yeah people who guided me through through uh, what was a somewhat challenging time. Unfortunately, I couldn't do that because uh, right around the time that I was planning to go there, COVID absolutely exploded in Spain. So I'm more mostly hoping that the people I want to meet, some of whom are quite old now, actually uh, survived the pandemic and are still there for me to go and go and see uh, once all of it's done. 
Jeez, yeah. And, and, and I know you've been tweeting a lot about COVID generally. You know, we spoke earlier a little bit about this and I just said, look, I'm, I'm pretty bored about the whole the whole thing. But that, that said, I'm in Sydney, you know, I'm going out cycling and I'm going out to restaurants or the office still or whatever. It's pretty, it's pretty relaxed. Whereas how long have you been in isolation for now? Well, let's see. So... Yeah, I think when I talk to people in Australia, they don't appreciate just what an absolutely dominant fact of life COVID is here. I'm I'm in London, which at the moment is the center of one of the worst outbreaks in the world. And we've got this new variant that seems to be spreading pretty quickly, despite people's best efforts to stay at home and and and, and not spread it. Yeah, as of the time that we're recording, well, I suppose the, the, the new lockdown started on the 23rd of December, announced just before Christmas, telling people they couldn't go see their family for Christmas. And now like all of England is under a full stay at home order for seven weeks to try to control the new variant and give us time to vaccinate as many old people as possible yeah really it just like interferes with every aspect of life it's like going to the shops is like kind of dangerous the current estimate is that one in 30 people have covid so like you go into just a supermarket like someone with covid is probably in there now or like was in there recently and there's like a decent chance that you could yeah breathe breathe the stuff it's just like so far and away different from anything that australia has ever reached i mean some people have decided to get through that by just ignoring the restrictions and going about their lives. And I guess for teenagers and young people can kind of understand that because the risk just isn't so great. But yeah, for like people who are trying to follow the rules, it's just completely turns you. It's, I mean, we're back just to March and April from, from last year all, all over again. And it's going to be that way for the next seven weeks. The thing that I've been like tweeting about that has just driven me crazy is the entire UK is basically just shut down. Like no one's lives are going ahead as normal. And the thing that we're waiting for is to vaccinate people. <laughs> This is like the biggest disaster I think that's hit the UK since World War II and nothing can resume until we vaccinated lots of people. And you'd think that like the the overwhelming thing would be just 24-7, 365, like everyone in the government, all of the effort should be towards just vaccinating as many people as quickly as possible. But it isn't. It There doesn't seem to be the sense of urgency about doing that. that you know, every day that we delay approving these vaccines that they're still in the application process is just a day for the nation loss because like some people in an office like were, were too slow to do it. It's not the attitude that, that people have. And I, I don't understand why. I don't, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm just kind of, maybe there is like a sense of urgency internally and it's just like completely invisible in the press or in the things that the government actually does. But as someone who's like so dramatically affected by all of these rules, it's just uh, incredibly baffling and frustrating. It does sound strange. I mean, we've got a slightly different issue here, but kind of comparable. We, we obviously, we haven't had the issues and, you know, we, we're in less of a lockdown in Australia, but, you know, they're choosing to wait and see with respect to vaccines, you know, you know Israel's yeah. obviously way ahead. The US has started vaccinating, the UK is vaccinated, et cetera. We have done zero vaccinations and, and they're like, well, you know, people aren't dying. We can afford to see what we, we can afford to wait and see. But the entire economy is like, ground to a halt, you know, in in some respects, you know, people can't see their families and the like, why aren't we just doing it in like a week? Like we an urban center, everyone's close to, you know, we can do drive-throughs. We did drive-through testing. We got GPs, whatever. Why are we just mass injecting people? It it does not make any sense. And I I don't know what it is. You know, I don't think it is institutional failure here. I don't know if, if, if that lack of urgency you would describe as institutional failure in the UK, maybe you would, not sure. I don't know if it's a cultural thing. It's totally bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's not what I would have thought would happen. I think that the case for Australia waiting is that 
while Australia is suffering economically and it interferes with people's lives, it's like nothing compared to the situation in some other countries. So what should happen is the vaccine should be delivered to these other countries that are like suffering. They just have like absolutely overflowing hospitals first. And then like maybe once we've dealt with the very worst countries, then we'll send the vaccines to Australia. But what's happening is that I assume that these vaccines have been delivered and are sitting in freezers in Australia. Well, well, so I don't know exactly where these vaccines are. I'm deeply sympathetic to prioritizing places where people are dying and need it more. So that's not my argument. But, you know, I think we have both local and and foreign production. But I, I think, and the arguments I'm hearing from officials is more that, well, you know, we haven't tested the side effects, still go through the approval process. It's less urgent so we can afford to kind of, you know, push the risk you know, down the line, which I think is just absolutely stupid. I don't think we're injecting millions of people, you know, in Israel and the US and the UK, and they're all wrong. You know, I think, you know, I think that there should be a greater sense of urgency. I don't think we should be taking vaccines from places that people are dying, but I think we have our own production sources. I don't think that's the constraint. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a lot to say about this. One thing is that I think I feel like something that's become apparent in the pandemic, and maybe it was like obvious before and I just wasn't noticing it, is like how constrained our society is by its risk aversion and the number of rules that it has, that really sensible things can't happen because just people are completely unwilling to like break the rules in an exceptional circumstance. And we have so many rules because we're not willing to accept like individual discretion or risk. And this, I guess, is like a long talking point that people have had about like red tape and, and limitations on people's choices. But it becomes apparent in cases when like the situation changes a lot. And now because there's such a high background risk, we need to be willing to take more risks in solving the problem. We can't be so risk averse because that's in fact dangerous. But there isn't a process for saying like, let's suspend a whole bunch of these rules that are slowing things down and are not suitable to the environment that we're in. And I guess it reveals the possibility that like so much good stuff that could have been happening if we were a bit more risk loving, a bit more willing to do something dangerous and unknown and a bit more willing to not have like incredibly long books of rules and regulations about everything that maybe we were suffering more from this before the pandemic than than we realized. Yeah, maybe it is the whole decadence issue and institutional (laughs) uh, decay issue. So what do you think is the um, correct historical analogy to the US today? Going back to our earlier point about, you know, it's looking like it's worse and it's looking like the institutions are decaying. You know, what what brings to mind? Yeah, I um, was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago and I posted on Twitter about it. I didn't get that far coming up with it. I guess, so, so what's the issue? One is like, maybe a bit of economic stagnation, though it's not the worst, but massive social tensions between different political groups, a big like rural urban divide. Lots of people who are getting quite a lot out of increasing polarization uh, within the country and driving people against one another. Yeah, I suppose I was thinking, like, is there an analogy to the Soviet Union in the late 80s? I actually recently listened to a bunch of lectures uh, about that about that era, uh, in part because I was interested in this question. I think I ended up concluding mostly not because, like, what broke the Soviet Union apart was very specific regions that had quite different ethnic populations and different views and had been extremely poorly treated, finally getting the freedom to complain and break away. And also people in Russia, just like finally having the freedom to discuss, like, what are we getting out of running this like Soviet empire and deciding we're not getting very much out of it at all. So we're just like willing to let it dissipate. It doesn't seem like there's like something quite analogous to that in the US. Though I suppose it is an interesting example of like a country that seemed so solid, like just dissipating into air over a period of years. Once people decided that they didn't want to be in the same place anymore. 
Another possibility is is Yugoslavia. So yeah, I think the key difference between the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia and the United States is that in Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union, you just had like very different ethnic groups that were kind of concentrated in particular places and could very like plausibly say, we are already a nation and we should break away. Whereas I think in the US, like despite the fact that there is this massive polarization and difference of opinion, it's all like much more interspersed because the main issue is a difference of opinion between cities, which are overwhelmingly liberal and have like their views and and everyone else in rural areas who are far more conservative and uh, pushing in a, in, a, in a very different direction. But of course, cities are spread across the entire country. There's cities in, in every state, even the redder states, and they tend to be quite blue. So you can't really have a country that splits in two where like the cities go one way and the rural areas go another way. So I, I yeah I'm not uh, like I was very inter- curious about those analogies, but I ended up concluding that they're not so good. One that I'm interested in reading about is um, Republican Spain in the 20s and 30s before the Civil War. One obvious difference there is that you had a military that was far more united around a different vision than the government, and was I think much more enthusiastic about staging a coup in favor of Catholicism and conservative values than the U.S. military is today. As far as I can tell, the U.S. military has kind of no enthusiasm whatever for directly sticking its oar into U.S. politics. I guess possibly that could change in future decades. But yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's the next one that I want to do a lecture series about and learn and see, like, does this have anything to say about the U.S. Uh, situation now? Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I agree. I, I don't think the Soviet Union or Yugoslavia will work at all because of the kind of, you know, ethnic, you know, the, the kind of brought together, you know, regional ethnicities kind of brought together. I'm more sympathetic to the Spanish example. I agree with, you know, with the military point. You know, I think, you know, to kind of turn the head, to turn the question on its head, you know, maybe there is no historical analogy. And and that's yeah. because there are a range of, you know, secular trends that are kind of experiments. You know, the, the, the immigration experiment in the US is kind of unique or female liberation and participation in the workforce and the effects that's having on society is like a long running, you know, changing the fabric of society thing as well. You know, the whole, um, the dominance of major cities at the expense of the rural base and that, you know, leading to quite different um, values and, and, and governance structures, you know, all these, you know, have some analogy into the past, but, but are kind of all, you know, they're uh, converging on, on a quite a different moment. And, and of course, it's all kind of, you know, there are a range of like legacy, you know, political institutions in the US that are, that are quite old. So, and, and obviously the, the last one I, sh- I should mention, of course, is, you know, technology. You know, that is a new, you know, in the history of man kind of trend. And, you know, as we've seen with COVID, there is no reason people need to be stuck in a particular city you can kind of choose your geography and work in companies remotely and as i kind of men- mentioned earlier you know i think that's going to have an impact on, on on the us you know what impact will crypto have on the political realm and, and, and all these other technologies i mean that's kind of yet to be seen um, so that's a bit of a cop out saying there is no kind of analogy, <laughs> but but still, I think there are a range of I think there are a range of secular trends that you haven't really seen in in previous eras. Yeah, well, I mean, we could just be in a world where we are in somewhat uncharted territory, and there's there's only weak analogies. I mean, I think yeah, you're right. The nation of immigrants thing is something that is somewhat new, and we only we have a couple of other cases, I guess, in Australia and Canada and New Zealand, and I guess plausibly actually a lot of Latin America. Like all of these countries are to some extent based on elimination of the existing population and then replacement with a bunch, a whole bunch of immigrants from many different different countries. 
Oh yeah. So if, I mean, f- from that perspective, it, it's not new. I mean, there, there are there are a whole bunch of examples of invasion and elimination of peoples, or you know, or I was I was just reading uh, a biogra- autobiography called Istanbul, you know, and 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 in there, the author writes about how Istanbul was you know effectively overrun by you know, Ottoman migrants from across the empire. And you can kind of see the impact it's had on the city and, and, and it's kind of, you know, and this, the kind of skeleton that's left. So I think there are, there are a range of kind of really negative, you know, kind of examples. You know, Australia, Canada at, you know, at this time and probably the US are kind of different positive examples. But I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, um, you know, who knows, maybe over the long run, you know, these don't turn out so well. So something that I've been writing about recently is, um, I guess most people think of the United States as primarily uh, like European-ish country that is that is kind of naturally clustered with Australia and Canada and, and, and the UK and other countries in continental Europe, which is like which is very understandable. But I think another way that you could group it that I think is more plausible than people think is as a Latin American country that in fact it has more in common in some ways within its history with say Mexico or Brazil or some of these other places. Uh, yeah, I recently wrote, I think it was like 15 ways in which the United States was more similar to Latin America or in its history and like ways that it's like institutions evolved than it was similar to Canada or Australia. And so one way that you could view what's happening now is that the US is perhaps reverting, kind of regressing back to its like more historical roots as like a, a frontier country, a country that has like massive ethnic divisions, massive class divisions in ways that we already see in in lots of Latin American in countries and like a more corrupt, uh, more violent than than Europe and, and Canada. I, I mean, obviously, like you've got to take all of these analogies with a grain of salt and only give them a bit of weight. But I think that's like one hat that you can put on that might help you to understand things about the United States that are otherwise confusing from a European perspective. Yeah, I'm totally sympathetic to that. I quite like that argument a lot. And it reminds me of the the regionalist argument about Israel as well, how it's becoming less Ashkenazi and uh, and more Middle Eastern over time, which I think's uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Although obviously, they're, they're, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there, there there are a few articles floating around. I think Tyler Cowen kind of linked linked to it like a couple of years ago. But with respect to, you know, the way. So first of all, kind of culturally, when I'm there, you can kind of feel it a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, it's political institutions. You know how you know some of its corruption scandals and the like. It all kind of you know feels a little bit more at home um, in, <laughs> in, in in its region. The counter argument to the US being you know, very Latin America is, of course, Canada, I suppose. You know, it's sitting right yeah. there as well. And so, and that still kind of seems to be sitting pretty. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could say it's it's the most European Latin American country and the most Latin American European country. It's kind of at this intersection between the two. And I guess you do see big regional differences between like the culture of, of the north of uh, places like, I guess, Wisconsin versus Texas or Florida. These are like really quite different places that have been crammed together into a single country with like really substantially different cultures. And it explains why you definitely do get like some, some tip pulling apart at the seams in a way that you don't in, I guess, like Austria or Denmark. <laughs> well, well, one of the more, one of the powerful books, you know, I've read the proper series of books like Albion Seed, The Secret of Our Success, you know, Guns, Gems and, and, and Steel, um, that, that make cases for kind of, you know, cultural persistence. And you can kind of see the folkways developing in the US and how how enormously, you know, they they persist. And so I guess it is not surprising that country that's so diverse in the US, you know, resists classification.
communication and is always kind of in you know one form of conflict internally or another. So, um, yeah. yeah, again, that feels like a bit of a cop-out, but uh, <laughs> it feels kind of true so, as well. So, sometimes the cop-out is the right answer. Yeah. So so tell me, when we were conversing earlier, you were saying that, you know, you, I, I try to get catch you at 10.30 a.m. and you're saying you're still sleeping, which is kind of like shocking <laughs> to me as a dad. I'm kind of woken up by my daughter or my son at like 6.30 in the morning or, or whatever it is most days. Um, what time do you get up in the morning? Yeah, this is a slightly embarrassing secret from a professional point of view. I mean, I, I'm inclined to defend the honor of night owls because, like, you know, what's 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 worse about working between like one a.m. and three a.m. than uh, working between like six a.m. and nine a.m.? One of the why is one of these things honorable and the other one not? My sleep cycle at the moment is uh, late, even by my standards. I think last night I went to bed at four a.m. and then got up at around at around midday. I feel like with the UK winter, I'm going to have to shift that back so that I get like at least a, a few tiny bits of sunlight in the, in the hours that I'm awake. Yeah, I, I, I think that my ideal would be going to sleep at 2 a.m. and maybe getting up at 10 a.m. Because I, I, I do feel like I'm most productive in, in the evenings between like maybe 9 p.m. And, 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 and 2 a.m. But then, yeah, going to bed at 4 a.m. Uh, then really puts you out of sync with everyone else and they start to look askew at you. <laughs> so I'd be happy with my like medium mm-hmm. night owl situation. It's interesting. Night owls always seem kind of defensive and kind of, what are they called, skylarks? Or, yeah, um, so I guess like larks are the other. Morning yeah. larks or something. People who get up early. Yeah, they're, they're like lark supremacists, you know, like they're, they're very strong views about you know that it's better to get up early in the morning whatever i'm of the view i've got kids it's my life i don't really (laughs) kind of uh, you know you know i'm sympathetic to people kind of going about however they like yeah i mean i think we're defensive because society society is designed around larks for some reason that uh yeah the people just view it as like good to be able to get up early and show up at work at 8 a.m and like people who don't go to sleep early enough are just like failing to have the willpower to go to sleep when 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 they want to. I mean, have you seen all this research showing that like one of the best things that you can do? It's like so hard to really improve schools uh, in order to get like more learning. Uh, often it requires like intense work and training and all these programs. But if you just start schools later, if you just start them at like nine rather than seven, as they do in some parts of the US, like people's test scores and learning like dramatically improve. I just find it astonishing that uh, that this hasn't been taken more seriously and that we're not like teaching teenagers at the time that they are actually able to think and letting them have like the sleep schedule that works for them. It really does make you kind of cynical about like what is the point of all of this anyway. If you have research showing that this is one of the best ways to improve test scores, it wouldn't even cost any money. <laughs> You're not, not interested. You know, it, it makes me totally cynical. I mean, the way our school system structured, even the the hours, you know, the content, the lot. I mean, it, it's got to it's got to fill you with the despair. But that's for another time. So I find yeah. it interesting, even the way you spoke about the UK, you know, winter and getting a bit of sunlight. You know, uh, yesterday I went for a run and a swim outdoors by the harbour. You know, I'm going for cycles. I'm getting a bunch of sunshine. There's an inherently pretty outdoorsy and healthy lifestyle generally available and 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 taken up in Australia. Do you miss Australia? Are you going to come back? Australians, as people say, don't know how, how good they have it. Like whenever people tell me that they're going to Australia, I'm like, uh, yeah, you're going to have a great time. Uh, like the people are paid really well by comparison to lots of other countries that they're coming from. The quality of life is fantastic. The the people are fun. You know, I've met like, I've met lots of different cultures now. And I, I really think that's something to be said for the kind of Australian larrikin personality and not taking things too seriously. It's like a nice level between like being indifferent to other people and being like too interested in them. That said, I, I yeah, I 
don't really see myself coming back, I guess, because just my, my career has taken me overseas and I have no idea like what job I would do there now that is a good fit for what, uh, yeah, the, the stuff that I've kind of specialized in. So now that, I've, now that I'm saying that out loud, uh, I'm realizing, well, I guess COVID could really change that because uh, remote working is so much more acceptable now that maybe I, maybe I could come back to Australia. The, the reality is my like Australian friendship group is pretty hollowed out now, Misha. It's kind of kind of you and my mama. So <laughs> uh i've been living overseas hey, uh, that sounds awesome yeah <laughs> well that would be awesome Misha, but you live in different cities so uh it's like it would be hard for me to like fully get the gang together yeah i would have fun living there i i expect that i'll come back and live there for a while at some point but realistically i think i'm pretty committed to the to, to, to the uk for uh for a lot of my working life and, and how did you find living in berkeley uh berkeley well the weather's really nice. I think I really found that I do not like the suburban sprawl that exists there. It's amazing, but like, despite the fact this is such a rich and important city, I mean, for those who don't know, Berkeley is just across the bay from San Francisco. Most of the Bay Area is just like single family housing, detached housing, very spaced out. It means you can't really walk anywhere. The mass transit doesn't work super well. Uh, you got to drive. I had quite a lot of friends uh, in in the Bay Area, but like even just reaching them was a was was quite a was quite a faff. So I think that for me was like a big downside. I suppose also I just found that I didn't really gel that well with like there's various different scenes in the Bay Area, right? I didn't really gel that well with like the the tech scene because it's kind of not my thing. I'm more of an economist. I'm like more in the philosophy angle than the like doing and inventing side. I don't really like gel with the uh, like very progressive kind of hippie politics that you get in some parts of the Bay Area. So I didn't really found yeah I didn't really feel like I'd quite I quite found my crew there relative to Oxford Oxford and London. I think there's also just there's a lot more cultural similarity between the UK and Australia than America and Australia. And so I just feel like I feel so much more comfortable in the UK for some reason because I just like know all of the social cues and how people get along and how people talk. And the, the US it has this illusion because it's the same language that it's the same culture in the same place, but it's it's uh, it's not. <laughs> it's different. US is really different, isn't it? And obviously, as we as we already spoke about, it's, you know, it's a lot of intra differences in the US. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to you wanting to stick around in a place as uh, intellectually diverse and deep as Oxford. Although, yeah, hopefully in the future, you know, you don't need to physically live there to experience that benefit. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I, I would be surprised if I don't come back and uh, live in Australia for for a couple of years at some point. Surely, surely that's going to come up and and, and be a good option. I mean, yeah, Sydney, Melbourne, awesome. it's such beautiful places to live. People, people, people shouldn't take me as discouraging that uh, one iota if you can get a, get a good job out there. I'm a huge evangelist of, of Sydney and, and, and Australia generally. absolutely love living here. And I think it's still underrated and people don't quite know how good we've got it here. Otherwise, they'd be trying to, you know, storm, storm our gates, uh, so to speak. So why has the Lord of the Rings held up so well? Oh, <laughs> the movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I was an incredible fan of those back when I was a kid. Uh, I remember, I remember. so many times, especially the extended editions. It was so good. And then I, I guess I went 15 years without watching them. I don't know why. I, I suppose I was just perhaps sick of them and I never really had the impulse to watch them. But then a, a bunch of us were together in a, in a, in a house in Portugal, <laughs> actually, uh, this year. And we watched them all through uh, three nights in a row. Why have they held up? I mean, I, I don't know that the special effects just don't look bad. I suppose that people say the prosthetics last longer rather than CGI. But although even the CGI in the show is like mostly pretty good. I mean, compared to the Star Wars stuff that was coming out of that time, it's a it's a world away. Maybe there's something where like, of course, it's a production of a book that was written in the 30s and 40s. So in a sense, like the material is already very 
dated and it's just like permeated the culture. It's not so much a product of that specific time, at least the story is not. It's just like the background thing of fantasy. But yeah, I, I don't have a great theory because a lot of other movies from that time really feel like they're 20 years old. And, and this one felt like it almost could have been produced today. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it as well. I, um, I, I use it at like Lord of the Rings analogies at work and stuff all the time to like, chagrin <laughs> of my colleagues. But um, yeah, no, I, 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 I think they're, um, yeah, they've, they've held up super well. So have you rewatched Chicago? Chicago, no. <laughs> remember, I was a fan I, of that. I, I remember think how much of a fan you were at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit cringe uh, in retrospect. Uh, no, I, no. I do still love musicals. It's a slightly guilty passion. Recently, I've been um, playing Beat Saber. I'm not sure if you know this virtual reality game, but you like you know wear the Oculus Rift headset, and then it's kind of like Dance Dance Revolution, but you're like holding lightsabers and have to smash these blocks that that fly you according to a rhythm and i have to admit i do really enjoy doing the musical stuff uh, doing hamilton and chicago tracks awesome. Um, awesome i'm sure i look like quite a goober but <laughs> you know we're, we're an age that you gotta, uh yeah, you just gotta do what you enjoy yeah you gotta do, you gotta do what you love i remember you um not being a fan of breaking bad it was a little bit too macabre for mm. you have i got that right I tried watching it three times and I think I once maybe got to the end of season one, but I just couldn't take it. I actually am very squeamish. I can't actually even watch nature documentaries because I find it so unpleasant to see like animals being chased and killed by, by other animals. Yeah, what? I think in season one, there's like some hostage situation where he's like kidnapped and taken out to the desert and then they like put a gun to his head and he's like terrified and they don't know what's going on. I want to be happy, Misha. I want to live a happy life. And when I'm not working and thinking about the nuclear holocaust that's coming, I don't want to be watching that. I want to watch Community or something happy. Oh, Community is so good. I watched it for the first time last year. And it is, I've never seen anything like it. It is such a weird show. Um, yeah. And like laugh out loud funny. I, I can't I, I can't believe I kind of missed it for so long. Um, I, I think that <laughs> it, it's, it's like transcendent comedy. And I actually want to use that word again for Breaking Bad. I think you are missing out. I, I've watched the whole thing twice and like I absolutely love it. Now, if you didn't like Breaking Bad, I've got another show for you. You have to watch The Boys. Okay. It's What's that Amazon about? Prime. So, so I, I always look down a little bit on people who said they were too squeamish for Breaking Bad or whatever. <laughs> I feel like I have PTSD after watching The Boys. It is like <laughs> proper traumatic. It, it's it's an excellent show. Like it's it's very yeah. clever. You know, kind of funny. You know, super engaging. But it is like next level dark. So I, I, I can't in good conscience actually trick you into watching it. But if you want to have a go, it is pretty epic. You used to watch like Oz, that prison show where they're just were shipping one another all the time when yeah. you were 16 or 17. Oh, I loved I it. Oh, younger. I was like 13 or something. And I just, I mean, it was dark and it was a bit much. But I just thought, wow. I mean, I remember Oz as the first kind of, this is what TV can be kind of show. It was that kind mm. of iconic show before The Sopranos. It's kind of been forgotten a little bit, um, but it was that iconic HBO series. And and I just thought it was totally amazing. And, and I, I, mean, I haven't actually gone back to rewatch, so I wonder how it's held up. But given the cast, which is kind of phenomenal, and they've kind of gone to do a whole bunch of things, I wouldn't be surprised if it's held up um, held up really well. Have you seen uh, The Expanse or, um, or Counterpart? 
No, 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 neither. Okay, so I, 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 like, like I was saying, I kind of just watch comedy. I watch like yeah. Sex Education and uh, Big Mouth and stuff like that. <laughs> I haven't heard of either of those actually. So it's okay. kind of funny, but but um, they're pretty so, good. So Tyler Cowen raved about Counterpart, and so I started watching. It's only two seasons, and it is super clever. You love it. it none of the stuff's gory or whatever. It's um, it's super okay. clever, super interesting, and the expanse is a little bit or is a little bit of a guilty. True. Like it, it's like you know, spacefaring conflict, but it's yeah. it's fun, it's interesting, and they've done an amazing an amazing job. But I, I do remember you being um, super into The Sopranos. Like you used to like yeah. play the opening tune <laughs> at school and, and and stuff like that. But um, yeah, The Sopranos is really good. I it's interesting to look at the like the violent shows that I that I do watch. So Sopranos, I guess, is like somewhat violent, but I, I guess ninety five percent of it isn't really that menacing it's more just like people talking with their families and their colleagues and so on and the politics of it so maybe that like that that's why it didn't bother me and doesn't bother me now i think i i mean i watched all the game of ferns which is absolutely brutal and gruesome and very negative at times and i do think it made my life worse <laughs> i do hmm. think i would have been better off from a well-being point of view if i had never watched it that said i'm probably going to rewatch a lot of the episodes in future so yeah are there any shows that you've watched where you feel like it made you worse off but you would you'd do it anyway um, never in terms of gore, like, as in, I'm not really kidding about the trauma from the boys. Like, I, like, to be honest, you probably shouldn't watch it. Um, like it is, you know, it is I wasn't ten, gonna. it's 10 X worse in that respect than game of Thrones. Like it is like, like I, I've never felt kind of brutalized after watching certain episodes. I felt brutalized. So it's pretty, it's pretty intense, but um, no, I, I've only felt that with poor quality. So it's like, my God, I've just wasted, you know, but I don't really do that. If, I, if, if something's poor, I kind of give yeah, up on it. Quit. Yeah, I just quit. So yeah. I don't really do that. But I just, I'm very anxious about time. I'm kind of like, I don't have much time. I'm going to die one day. I can't waste life doing, you know, crap like this. So that, that's the one yeah, thing that shows. I get very anxious about. Well, whatever it is, like if I'm watching it, you know, I, I'm allowed to enjoy shows. I'm allowed to enjoy films. I think they're like, um, you know, meaningful kind of human outputs and, and things that I, I get a lot out of but um i think there's just so much out there you don't need to kind of just consume whatever crap is in front of you yeah why do you think that we were both so into radiohead at different times in high school oh i suppose doesn't everyone go through that phase as a teenager doing uh, just an angsty thing i mean they're, they're, they're objectively excellent to be fair but i just yeah. have, i just never really listened to them anymore it was kind of like i binged yeah, on them but i wouldn't listen yeah, I don't listen to them now either, and I think I, I think that I would find it painful in some way to listen to them now because I suppose I just associate it with like memories of being a kind of angsty, frustrated teenager. Yeah, I mean, musically they are excellent. I, I guess we both we both were like kind of depressed at different times in our own way. I think being a teenager is kind of kind of shit. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. I think we both definitely leaned into that whole angsty teenage uh, te- teenage thing. So, Rob, I've, I've loved talking to you you know we've i know it's been you know we we rarely get to sit down and have a two-hour chat about um you know things as wide-ranging as as we have is there anything else you want to chat about or, or for me to ask you before we kind of wrap it up 
Uh, no, I guess it's a, well, we're hitting a 1.20 a.m. in the morning here. So I should probably probably head home to my partner. <laughs> I think she- Do some more work. <laughs> I, I, told, <laughs> I, I told her that I was going to be back home at, at, at 12.30. So I think she, she may, 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 may be waiting for me. Yeah, it's a- Awesome. It's, it's great to get to talk to someone who I've, I, I, yeah, I've never had an interview quite like this one. I, I, I had a, I, I had a, a cider before, before we started. I'm not sure whether, whether awesome. anyone could tell, but- <laughs> Figure that might be suitable oh, awesome. given, well, given the I, nature I, of the I, topics. I couldn't tell, but I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Look, I don't know if the audience of this is going to be like you and me and your mum. And if that's the case, <laughs> that's good enough for me. But I absolutely had a great time chatting and look forward to uh, speaking soon. Yeah, talk again soon. Have a good day. Cheers, mate. You too. I, uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and found it the uh, right or at least a, a tolerable amount of self-indulgent. If you like this conversation, Misha has other interviews on his own show that you might want to check out, uh, including one with Mark Luder, who was uh, on the show back in 2019, uh, the philosopher Agnes Callard, uh, and a new one that I really enjoyed uh, about the Georgian language. You can subscribe by searching for Eureka uh, in any podcasting app. Kieran Harris is our producer, and sound engineering is by Ben Cordell. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.